Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! I'm telling you, my spider sense is tingling. Amazing Spider-Man number 129 mint condition. Worth a thousand bucks. Comic book. No, it's not just a comic book. This is the first appearance of a Punisher. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Willow, but it's the fat signal. How do I get it to work? Willpower. Like the Green Lantern's ring. You call it comic books. That's so cute. Cute. It's very rugged and manly. Just a bit geek, huh? I think it's sweet. It must be really hard when all your friends have, like, superpowers. You must feel like Jimmy Olsen. You can't charge innocent people for saving their lives. Spider-Man does. Action is his reward. Hey, Kiss Comics! Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back. I'm glad. That's good. Yeah. So you, you're keeping that up. Professional. Very good, yeah. I'm very impressed. Uh, and welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. This is Happy Birthday Superman... Seven. Six? Seven? Yeah. Is this seven? Seven. As we start to cover the noughties. They've really got a better, get a better name than that, I haven't they? They've had ten years to get a better name. Yeah, nobody's come up with one. Uh, first, though, emails. Mm-hmm. Of which we have a many, many, many. We're probably not going to get through them all tonight. Probably not. That's okay, we'll just carry them over to next week. Uh, Superman Part 1 is the title of the first one, which is appropriate. Mm-hmm. It's from our buddy Chris Keith. Hey, Chris. Hello, Leylands. I just wanted to write you because you've done the unthinkable. Have we? I don't know. I think we've done many things that are unthinkable, but I don't know about this. As many times as I have been drawn to reading Golden Age Superman, I have resisted and resisted. But now, after this week's episode, I am breaking open my copy of Superman from the 30s to the 70s that I have not touched in decades to read along with your episode. Okay, I cheated and also found certain electronic copies of this issue through questionable means. I haven't ever been a vocal supporter of anything Golden Age. just wasn't my thing. I remember reading from 30s to the 70s when I was a kid and I loved it. I pulled the book off the shelf when I was a 20-ish and put it right back. No interest. The only Golden Age I would touch was Detective Comics and that was because it was so crime noir despite being just an eensy bit racist. Wow, so all Chinese have hatchets and roam Chinatown of Gotham in gangs. Ah, the 40s. I do love Superman though and despite being my favourite character I could never read the pre-crisis stuff. However, I have made the mistake of lumping Silver and Bronze Age in with the Gold Age and that is a terrible mistake. Don't get me wrong, the ideas in the Silver Age were great. Brainiac, Kando, the Fortress. The execution? Eh, not so much. The stories were silly, the resolutions ridiculous, and Superman looked like my dad, i.e. way too old to be a superhero. Don't get me started on the Bronze Age. Carbrack, Vartox. Oh no, I think I've said enough. I checked out the 30s to the 70s from a library when I was about 8 and was fascinated by the old stuff. I was just getting into Superman comics and was so disappointed to buy the issues at the newsstand and see the beautiful Adams or Garcia Lopez cover to open the book to reveal my dad in tights. Nobody wants to see that, do they? Let's be honest. Sorry, I know that a lot of people worship Kurt Swan. I'm not one of them. I appreciate his Iron Man streak on the books, but Superman should not look 50. Ever. Tell Alex Ross that. Over the years, I just equated that Silver Age look to all eras pre-crisis. Rereading the books that you selected, I can see how wrong that I was in that way of thinking. The Golden Age stories are quirky. The art is, by today's standards, poor. However, these issues were what interested me in Superman comics. The movie already had me hooked by the time I saw it on cable in 1979. Comics took a bit longer. 
The books are filled with, pardon the pun, action. The mine cave-in story was interesting. No costume for your main character. That early in a book when character recognition could be critical? Gutsy choice. The story itself was really enjoyable in an old-fashioned way. Action issue 23, Luther is carnival hypnotist. I guess... Interesting, but a little too much of the captions telling the story instead of just showing the reader. By the way, if you have the opportunity to get the CBR of this book in its entirety, you get Tex Thompson and one of the most racist sidekicks in the history of comics, Gargi. Unfreaking believable they got away with this. Superman 2. I've read this one several times before, but I still just love the art. As unrefined, I guess would be the word, as it is, the feeling of motion, of sheer action, there's that pun again, is totally conveyed on the page. Superman 17, not a lot of comments other than I love the door to the secret citadel. And he has a gym! So wacky yet cool at the same time. I'm going to have to break down and see if I can track down more of these issues. Yes, through questionable means and trades. Thanks for the trip down memory lane. I can't wait for the 50s episode. Thanks again for all your efforts in putting together an excellent show, Chris Keith. You're very welcome, Chris. We're glad that we could steer you towards the golden age of Superman, which I still think is awesome. Mm-hmm. You're still on the fence a bit, aren't you? It's, it's good. good. Some of them are good. As with everything, some of them are good, some, some of them are not as good. Not as good. It's very true. Our next email, I'm back with an email of varying topics and emotions, or as the kids call it, feels. Do you call it feels? Sometimes when I'm taking the mic. All right. Boy, that hit me right in the feels. I, I don't know if that's what he meant. <laughs> it's from Kenneth Laster. Hey there, Kenneth. Hey, Leyland's A and M. Hey, Laster K. Uh, very good. Lastic K. Lastic. That's very good. Yeah. That could be his his his, his rap name. Lastic K. Yo yo yo, Lastic K. On the bay, checking out the hey hey hey. <laughs> that so works. <laughs> I haven't emailed in a bit, but now I am. That's nice. That's good. <laughs> First of the description of the Injustice video game. In the most recent Superman episode, did not do the story justice. The tie-in comic is actually really good and makes the concept believable as well as the trailer. I will give a spoilery description of the first three to four issues, which I read, and it actually made me interested in reading the comic. But in the International Treaty of Spoilers, I'm going to cut that out, Kenneth. But I did read it, and it has made me want to read the book. And an image that Michael Bailey posted on Fortress of Bailitude as well made me want to read the book. Really? Yeah. I'm, I, the, the entire idea just... It's just, it's not, not selling it to you, is it? The Superman Doomsday bit. Do you know what happens? No, that? no, I do not know that bit. Right. Don't tell me. That's the driving force behind it, which kind of makes you think, oh, right, well, this is a stupid idea. Okay, fair enough. I'm, I'm quite intrigued by it. The thing I think is a very stupid idea. Is the game any good? Oh, the game's just Mortal Kombat with probably DC characters. Right, okay. Well, I'm, I'm quite intrigued by it. I'm, how many issues is it, do you know? Is it six? About seven so far. Right, okay. Now that's not out of the way, I really feel bad that I didn't listen to the Hellblazer episodes. I want to read Hellblazer, I really do. I love the concept. I'm getting more into the occult and out there books like Hellboy and Fables and Preachers and things like that. But I can never find any Hellblazers. They aren't in any bookstores I look in, nor my comic shop, other than the month of the book. And as of yesterday, that isn't going to be a good jumping on point. I guess I could start with Constantine, but I feel impure starting there. Like hardcore Batman fans who have just seen the movies and think fracking JGL is the official Robin. <laughs> Yes, yes, we were down with Joseph and Gordon Levitt, me and Robin, were we? No. Especially how they, they went with it. Oh, yeah, that, that reveal at the end yeah. that was supposed to be like a sop to all the fans, and you were like, no! That's awful. Mm-hmm. But let's face it, that was an awful ending to, by and large, a not terribly well executed movie. No. 
quite a disappointing conclusion by mm. all, all things considered. Quite a disappointing film. Well, yeah. You had six Robins and a Terry McGuinness, Nolan. All of these would have been a good Easter egg. Pandered to fans of the source material and fans of Robin. Oh, it shouldn't have been Terry McGuinness. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent idea, that, if it had been Terry Because if it had been Terry McGuinness, yeah. your average person would have just gone, okay, he's Terry McGuinness, big deal. And we would have been sat there going, oh, it's Terry McGuinness! But, well, that means you, you can need, um, well, clubs where everyone does the same dance. Yeah, everyone like, does the same dance the, move. Yeah. Like, and a Darwin Cook hand just keeps <laughs> moving towards your face. Ooh, the email changed rapidly. Sorry. My phone and its stupid podcast app failed to make it past the email section, so I look forward to the rest of the episode. Really loving the coverage because Superman has recently become my top spotting hero done. Kenneth Laster, boy, wonder. Well, thanks, Vic, Kenneth. We, we appreciate you emailing in. You have made me interested, along with that poster that Mike Bailey posted, of, uh, of reading Injustice. Maybe we'll cover it on the show. Maybe. Who knows? I'll just stick with the game. Or just maybe we'll cover the game on the show. Yeah. Left, right, down, <laughs> X, X, X. Superman jumps over Batman and delivers a fatal blow. <laughs> Spider-Man Movie Series is the is the title of the next email. It's from our buddy Johnny Freeberg. Hi, Johnny. So I was listening to part three of your excellent Happy Birthday Superman show, and you were talking about your plans for a Spider-Man movie series. I enjoyed hearing this quite a bit, especially because it reminded me of a Spider-Man tele- television series that I've worked out in my head, as in remarkably similar. Uh, great minds, <laughs> is all I can say to that. Season one would take place in Peter's final year of high school. The overarching villains would all be crime bosses, Kingpin, Silvermane, etc. But they would get taken out of the picture about halfway through. At the halfway point, Dr. Octopus is introduced, but as the master planner, rather than a supervillain. The big bad of the season would be the big man, a.k.a. Frederick Foswell from Amazing Spider-Man 10. The soap opera drama would be along the lines of the first 2019... 2099 issues <laughs> of the first 29 issues of Amazing, but mostly taken from the first 10 issues. The season would end with Doc Ock having become more of a supervillain, basically having the story of Amazing Spider-Man 11 and 12, and Foswell being arrested. The organised crime of New York clearly being in a shambles. Season 2 begins with Peter just starting college, and the first episode has the Green Goblin trying to pick up all of the organised crime by having Spider-Man stop it. Throughout the season, he becomes a subplot, slowly changing him from wanting to be a crime boss to wanting to destroy Spider-Man. The soap opera drama is a love square involving Peter, Gwen, Harry and Mary Jane. Peter and Gwen end up together about halfway through, and at that point, Harry begins to pine after Mary Jane. Also, throughout the season, Peter and George Stacy develop a close relationship. The season has him fighting supervillains, and at the end of the episode, you see Doc Ock recruit them. Nick Fury style. The season would end with a Sinister Six showdown. At the very last moment is a warm Peter walking home when he suddenly gets captured by the Goblin. Season 3 opens with a mashup of Amazing Spider-Man 39 and 40 and the night Gwen Stacy died. The season up to the halfway point after that is him and George getting past her death, including Peter and Mary Jane getting together, and just when they're almost there, Gwen shows up. The rest of the season is Clone Saga and the death of George Stacy factors in somewhere. The season ends fairly similar to Jerry Conway's Clone Saga with Peter finally finding peace with his life on some level. I had a few more season structure, but that's where your ideas end, and I've been rambling long enough. Thanks always for the awesome show. You're very welcome. That's quite interesting that he's got pretty much the same ideas I have. Mm. Proof positive that we should be making Spider-Man movies. You should. Not Sony and Avi Arad. Mm-hmm. Not that Avi Arad's done any bad things. He's done quite some good things. But I think it's time he gave it to me. I should just, be in charge. Just because you want to. Just because I want to do it. Our next email is entitled Hey Kids, Volume 2, Episode 8. Challenge accepted. 
Hello again, lovely Leylands. Hopefully this is getting you under the wire for the recording, the finale of Happy Birthday Superman. Well, in that respect, yes, you have. Because you've made the penultimate episode of Happy Birthday Superman. Just to interrupt you, hmm? this letter, is, this email is from J. David Wheatley. It is from J. David Wheatley. I'm sure I was going to mention that. Yep. <laughs> Hello, David. A little picture of him looking at us. Hello, David, staring at me. It's kind of making me a bit scared, so let's let's move that down. Some thoughts on episode 8. The death of Superman deeply affected me as a child, of 35, and can bring a tear to my eye every time, as it is unrelenting. Another good tale from the 60s is the original Superman Red Superman Blue, which I felt was a better, more fitting end to the Silver Age than whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. I considered that one. Mm. Have you ever read the original? No. Superman Red ends up with Lana and Superman Blue ends up with Lois and then hijinks ensue when they meet up in secret and then swap costumes and go home okay so they swap wives yeah that doesn't happen (laughs) (laughs) but I just that's where my mind went when I saw that but it's a good story I almost considered it the two of you are nailing this birthday special series and it is a weekly smile upon my face keep fighting the never ending battle and that battle is to be excellent to each other Sandy must football rules We'll take your word for that. Your pal, Ted David Weeder. Thank you very much, Mr. Weeder. We appreciate your email. Can I just say you are knocking it out of the park with Superman Forever Radio recently? Although you recently did an episode on whatever happened. No, what's so funny about Truth, Justice and the American Way, which I haven't listened to yet for reasons that will become obvious as this episode unspools in your ears. But I will go back and listen to it later, I promise. Our next email is again from the future, listening to the past, and it's from Abel Padilla again. Hey, Abel. Nice to speak to you again. Or read to you again. That's what I meant, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Greetings, Leylands! Once again, I'm listening in the future to your podcast in the past. I was listening to the start of your first Superman episode when I had to pause the podcast playback, turn off the pot from boiling, and quickly sit down to jot some thoughts as I listen to your thoughts on Amazing Spider-Man 700. Number one, the comparison to FF50 is an apt one when discussing the events of ASM 700. Kurt Busiek also explored this theme during his run on Thunderbolts, where the heroes were disguised former supervillains who now had the chance to make amends for past deeds. I will be curious to see how this affects both Peter Parker and to Octavius after the dust settles. Two, I understand Michael's acceptance of the events of ASM 700 as the new status quo, but also Andrew's reluctance to call this the new status quo yet. Certainly there have been runs of comics where a new status quo was accepted and the stories continued on from it. DC did it with the introduction of Kyle Rayner as the new Green Lantern, when Wally West became the new Flash, or when Tim Drake became the new Robin. They also did it when Barbara Gordon became Oracle, and it seemed a revolving door of characters tried to step in to become the new Batgirl. Marvel also had a very intelligent Hulk running around during Peter David's run on the comic. There was also the stories of the Hook Hand Aquaman that continued long after Peter David stopped writing that book. The problem, as both of you point out, is what happens when it comes time to explain why a character is the way they are within a current storyline. For example, whilst it's easy to explain to, say, my mum and dad, who watched the live-action Batman series when I was younger, how Dick Grayson grew up and became Nightwing and how someone else is now Robin, it's much more confusing to explain what happened to Barbara Gordon when we could see Barbara Gordon running around as Batgirl in the Batman animated series. 
The perception out in the public was that Barbara Gordon was still Batgirl and that no story in a medium other than comics told otherwise. For people not into comics, the point of reference will be that they watched on television or the movies. This may be why Barry Allen was reinstated as The Flash and Hal Jordan as Green Lantern. From a storytelling standpoint, it might be easier to not have to explain legacies or families of characters and just start from the beginning. From a marketing standpoint, less work has to be done as well. If Barry Allen's Flash and Hal Jordan's Green Lantern are the ones on lunchboxes and t-shirts, it takes a great deal of effort to undo all of that previous work to let the public know there's been a new hero in town. Um, you see, I think by and large the the examples you gave, the, they were offered up as status quo changes. There had been different Green Lanterns before Kyle Rayner took it on, so it was acceptable to believe this was going to be a status quo change. It had it, Tim Drake was the third Robin so again it was acceptable that this was going to be a status quo change the fact that Wacker Steve Wacker and co have been banging on about how this is a status quo change just makes me think that it isn't if yeah. they'd have kept their mouth shut they're only saying that to convince you just to yeah. go the other way and Wacker's just, Wacker just winds readers up anyway he considers that to be part of his job yeah so the fact that, that he said that, when it clearly isn't, this isn't a status quo change. Especially not with a reveal yeah. in Superior. In Superior number one, mm. which I don't think we've given away. Not yet. So we're not going to. Well, you only didn't give it away because I haven't read it. Ah, that's it. So you've read it now. I have. Right. And what did you think of that? Well, Because you'll remember. Yeah. If you remember that show, we are spoiling Superior Spider-Man number one now. So I'm just warning you. If you remember in that show, I did actually give it away. But I gave it away in such a way that you didn't know I'd given it away. No, I did. I actually said, Peter Parker's back at the end of Superior Spider-Man 1. Yeah. And then I made it out that it was a joke, and it was that would have been a cool twist. But that is actually what happens. No, that ruined it for me. At the end of Superior Spider-Man 1. And you keep saying you want to ruin 700 for me, but you really did. I didn't know. Did I ruin 700 for you? By saying that episode of Buffy were... Faith and Buffy swap. See, I, I argue... That a spoiler, but that really was. I argue that we knew that from the issue prior. I didn't, also hadn't read the issue prior until I read... Well, that's your own daft fault, then. <laughs> <laughs> so, to me, 700 didn't have a major shock in it. Because 699 gives did, away what's happening. you're expecting everything to be good and jolly. And then, at the end, when Peter flatlines, yeah. I'd already guessed that's what was going to happen. So, is it a spoiler when you guess what's going to happen? Which is a question I think we've posed before and we couldn't come up with a satisfactory answer. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, because you don't know the end. You just think you know the end. And when I got to the end, it was like, I figured that out. Yeah. Right. So, what do you think of spectral Peter Parker following Doc Ock around? Well, I think that's the way of saying it's not going to be permanent. Unless we're well, thinking that, but they do something like... It's they, not going to be permanent. They, they turn it into Firestorm. <laughs> that's not a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Parker becomes Firestorm. Yeah. Oh, I don't know about that, to be honest with you. Anyway, uh, carrying on with Abel's email, as a disclaimer, I have not read Amazing Spider-Man 700 or Superior Spider-Man. As an unemployed house husband, I have to be judicious as to where my weekly allowance goes, but I have been following along on various podcasts and news sites to see how the story's been progressing. It sounds like a fun reader like Michael. I've wondered if perhaps this might be the new status quo and how it might play out in the long term. I've typed long enough, so I must continue cooking dinner. I'm sure I'll have other thoughts as I listen to the episode. Some may or may not make their way to you, depending on whether in the midst of burning the pasta... <laughs> Thank you again for your delightful show. I will check in later. Sincerely, Mr. Magoo. P.S. The music for the intro sounds good. I will check it out further on Spotify. Thank you for the recommendation. Thank you for emailing in. We appreciated your thoughts on whether or not that was a status quo change. 
Our next email comes from Rob Stubbs. Uh, it's Superman Through the Ages Part 2. I have returned once again to torment you, Andrew, and Michael, and you can't get rid of me by tricking me into saying my name backwards. Would that no, be we can sports? Just, it, it would be, but we could just press back on the internet. <laughs> Go to the next email. That would totally work. So if you revamp Mr. Mix's petal for, for the 21st fancy. century, you have to get him to press back on your internet browser. Yeah. <laughs> I like the new opening credits, which I forgot to mention. Well, you don't take it from movie clips, but the more down-to-earth, smaller-budgeted television to grab the clips from. I'm not going to make some idle commentary about the other people emails, even though I suppose I could imitate the younger Leyland's favourite Morrison and make my email a meta-email com- commenting on other emails, but then you'd be forced to pitch this email done in a Scots accent. I totally think we could totally do a Scots accent. Y- you could. I totally watched Brave the other night. <laughs> And since then, I've not topped, no top, no, I can't even get my words out, even in a funny accent. I've no stopped talking like this since I watched Brave. Okay. It was that good. <laughs> I liked it very much. Billy Connolly was very funny. I was going to say, you sound just like Billy it. Connolly was great. You're not doing a Scottish, you're but, doing a but, Billy Connolly. But Kelly MacDonald, she's a bit of a hottie, but you couldn't see her because it was just her voice. <laughs> so that was kind Cover of upsetting. But if you just watch Train Spot and you see quite a lot of Kelly <laughs> MacDonald, aye, she was quite, uh, quite pert. <laughs> Unfortunately, you see a little bit more of Ewan McGregor than I would have liked. I'm not fond of Ewan McGregor's lightsaber, <laughs> unless you know he's in a Star Wars film. <laughs> I don't mind it when he's in a Star Wars film. I, I like, like seeing his lightsaber in the battles and such. But oh no. I can't even be done with all that when he gets his, his old man out. Because he seems to do it too much. Anyway, I'm going to have to be going now because I've got an email to read in a funny Scots accent. I must admit that I haven't listened to the tribute two-part episode at the end of Vertigo John as of right now. I fully intend to, eventually. At one point, I did own the first 25 to 30 issues of that series, which I sold for a lot of cash at the time to spend on women, beer and song excellent things to spend your money on I preferred Lucifer at that point where he says the hell with it, let anyone out of hell that takes off I think the writer you mentioned just recycles endlessly his main character is the same person no matter where it is set there are actors like that who stop being actors capable of playing other characters but instead just play themselves with a different name I can tie these separate threads all together by saying that the actor who plays Vertigo John in the movie is an actor who's just playing himself with a different name that wasn't Constantine I'm sorry, Mm. John Constantine is not Keanu Reeves. Whoa. Yeah. I got like, no. No, no, no. John Sim probably would have made a better John Constantine. I don't... Do you not see that? that Who would you have gone for? I don't don't know. I would have left it a comic, to be honest. John Hanna? I don't know. Maybe he's getting on a bit now to be a good John Constantine. I don't see why you have to turn Constantine into a movie. McAvoy. James McAvoy. No? No. Okay, fair enough. Michael Fassbender. No. No. I'm just going to go through the entire cast of X-Men First Class. Uh, frequently the covers in the early days had nothing to do with the interior of the story, were a naked ploy to pull in readers, even though I'm not sure why a skunk would be an attraction. I think Superman just gets bored of hitting things with his hands, so he mixes it up occasionally. On my alternate theory that Superman has always dreamed of being a professional wrestler who smashes his opponents with his head. The first story is remarkable in its silliness, where Amnesia afflicts the Man of Steel due to hitting an asteroid with Krypton on it. I didn't have this problem with Clark Kent thinking the Superman suit gives its wearer his powers. 
After all, he doesn't know how Superman's powers work because he doesn't remember he's Superman, nor that he is Clark Kent, a reporter. The second story is far more fun, with Batman and Superman meeting for the first time on a cruise as they are forced to share a cabin, if you don't take a cynical modern view of the story. I like the idea of Batman deciding he's going to take a vacation instead of brooding in his cave as Robin is off visiting his relatives, who are frequently out of the country and travel a lot. I can explain why Bruce Wayne doesn't make a fuss, as he's a humble sort of guy, even as a millionaire, so would put up with rooming with somebody else. After all, he's on vacation and doesn't expect to be have to be Batman. He is also Batman and brought his costume along just in case something happens. But if he's on vacation and doesn't expect to be Batman, yeah. he just took his costume for crack. Maybe he likes dressing up in it. Maybe he thought there'd be a fancy dress ball going up. And if he's got a Batman costume, like, like that episode of Spider-Man. Yeah. Exactly, man. The costume changing was sort of silly, but if you're Batman, you figure to get the costume on, slip your bat oxygen mask on, and then toss down a knockout gas pellet to make sure Kent is out to slip out. Superman could change at super speed, but that would make whooshing noise as he did that. So he puts on his outfit, uses super ventriloquism to make loud coffee noises, then super speeds out the cabin door. Neither of you guys pick up the major problem with the story. This all falls apart if somebody's standing around outside and sees either one of them coming out of the cabin in costume where Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent are staying. Well, I got that lots of people hadn't got on board yet, and they were all busy watching the robbery. Yeah. I still maintain that the bigger error was seeing both Batman and Superman getting off the boat, mm. which gives away that they're on the boat. Yeah. But I still... Either way, it works, I suppose. It's a clever idea to distract Lois Lane by having Batman pay attention to her, which fails due to his overhearing their plan. It also lets Superman show he's actually interested in Lois, despite his process of a never-ending mission, and that he likes to show off his powers. Of course, this also falls apart if you consider Superman doesn't know she's around with all his superpowers, so he ought to have known she was there. These characters are open, easily accessible. All right. These characters are the open, easily accessible people, as no one thought it was unusual for either Batman or Superman to show up to do event acting a lot more, like baby-kissing politicians would be in the modern era. The I-have-more-important-things-I-could-be-doing Batman and Superman would still be years away. Lois Lane goes off with Robin is a good payoff at the end, because even though Superman and Batman saved her, they did collude in treachery to try and distract her. I think her coming to the conclusion Bruce Wayne is Batman is perfectly understandable, viewed through the lens of her thinking Clark Kent is Superman. Andrew, you mentioned that Lois and Clark episode where Superman lost his powers and gets cut as a reason she would never think that Clark is Superman again. Does that fall apart in a world where she knows about magic, shapeshifters and kryptonite? Um... Yeah, well, there's also the thing as well. At that point in Lois and Clark history, she didn't, she wasn't thinking that Clark Kent was Superman. But I always did think it was a bit odd. If you've seen somebody actually cut themselves, yeah, no amount of magic or kryptonite or something would make you think that they were Superman. But that's that's just me. I've never read the postmodern story take, and it probably don't want to after hearing it from you guys. The Silver Age was frequently silly, but they weren't deliberately cruel on me. It was a more innocent time in your third story, as I'm ignoring the other modern story. So Superman wants to give Lois Lane a handmade pearl necklace. A handmade pearl necklace is something we could really pounce upon. <laughs> I hadn't got that until... Uh... But we're not going to. And Jimmy gets a car so he can be off somewhere else as Superman gives Lane a pearl necklace. I went back and reread this story to refresh my mind and thought they played fur with the reader in giving them clues who the mysterious Mr. X is. I did find both your commentary amusing, but clearly even Superman wants to be Batman as he dons the Nightwing identity in the bottle city of Kando. You guys are overthinking it as Superman robots can easily deliver the presents. Superman has all of those precautions in place in case Lex Luthor or one of his other villains breaks in, but it falls apart when you consider there's no handmade present for Clark. 
Okay, I've changed my mind. The Silver Age stories were really cruel, as your false story proves. Poor Supergirl. She loses her father and mother and everyone she knows to a slow, lingering kryptonite death to fly off in a rocket to an unknown planet where she gets to meet her sole surviving family member who, instead of taking her in, sends her off to live in an orphanage. I mean, Bruce Wayne can adopt a young boy who has zero relationship to him, but Clark Kent having a teenage cousin appear out of nowhere and start living with him is unacceptable. It's not like he has a place to stay that's far away from other people until she learns of her superpowers. Perhaps she's a... Perhaps he's afraid if she stays out in the Fortress of Solitude, Batman might show up and adopt her, and she goes to live at Stately Wayne Manor, becoming Batman's other sidekick. That would have been awesome. Yeah. Batman and Supergirl would have been brilliant. Super Batgirl. Yeah, that would have been that would have been absolutely fantastic. I will return for part three. R. L. Stubbs Jr. Uh, it's very nice to hear from you. Thank you very much. We look forward to hearing from you for part three. By which I mean we've already got your part three email, but unfortunately we're running out of email time, so we'll save that till next week. We've just got time for one short one from Josh, mother-loving baker. Little quirks. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Josh. Minutes, literally minutes after I finished listening to your Happy Birthday Superman 70s episode, I picked up my son from daycare. There, they get a sticker every day, they're good. And after five days of good behaviour, they get a prize. Well, today, Caleb got a Batman comic that was way too mature for his six-year-old self, but not too mature for me. Whilst paging through it, I came across an ad for DC Comics Classics Library. One of the editions, Superman Kryptonite Nevermore. Don't just love it when life throws little things at you. Anyway, great show, looking forward to the next one. Hugs and kisses, Josh Baker. I wonder what issue of Batman it was. Well, Kryptonite... I don't remember when Kryptonite Nevermore came out. We could probably work it out from there. Cool. If it wasn't suitable for uh, a six-year-old. So it must have been 2000s. Yeah, around there. Mm. Anything Dan Didio publishes yeah. isn't suitable for a six-year-old, though, is it? I'm Dan Didio. We've done more for bringing maturity to DC Comics. By killing everyone. <coughs> by having multiple panels of people being stabbed through the back. And an entire miniseries devoted to killing more people than Crisis on Infinite Earth did. <laughs> because that was the point of Crisis on Infinite Earth. To kill people. Yeah. Anyway, that about wraps it up for emails for this week. We have a couple more, but we'll cover those in the next few episodes. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and be right back with Superman in the Naughties. Hey everyone, Sean Engle here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. Hey, it's good to hear from you. It's been a long time. How have you been? What have you been up to? Oh, not much. Working with other podcasters, calling around with Simon Cowell, prepping for the Mayan apocalypse. You know, the usual. Me. Anyhow, uh, glad we got back together since the show, Just One of the Guys, is coming to a turning point, and since you were there at the beginning, I thought it'd be appropriate that you'd be here now. Ooh, are you finally changing formats and doing your epic coverage of the Al Milgram Opus US 1? Um, no, I'm gonna start coverage of the Kyle Rayner stories in Green Lantern. And that supposedly is more impressive than the trucker who can receive CV signals through a metal plate in his head? Undoubtedly. Plus, I'm still going to be covering the ongoing saga of Guy Gardner. Mm, will he be getting a metal plate in his head which allows him to receive CP signals? No, nothing quite that ridiculous. Although the stories will involve him getting alien DNA, becoming a living weapon, and punching Nazi dinosaurs. Seriously? Yep. So all of this, yet the epic tale of a trucker who's vying to avenge his death of his brother caused by a man who sold his soul to the devil for a satanic 18 healer is just too goofy? Precisely. <sighs> Whatever. So where can I find out about all these changes? Lots of places. For one, you can go to www.justoneoftheguys.lipson.com to download the shows, check out the covers of the books, and leave comments on individual show postings. 
You can also find the show on iTunes just by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, and you can leave a review there as well. So after you finish these books up, you'll cover US-1? Maybe. I've still got that Dallas Dynasty show with J. David Weeder to do. And Scott Gardner has approached me about doing an NFL Super Bowl podcast that he wanted to do in conjunction with the 25th anniversary of its release. It's come check it out every Friday at justoneoftheguys.libson.com. This is the story of an amazing boy who grew up in the fields of Kansas in a little town called Smallville. <laughs> okay. And we're back. Thank you very much, Adam. That's for all the people that complain they don't hear enough Adam on the show. Oh, you do. <laughs> you say that as a loving big brother, don't you? <laughs> uh, yes. Superman. That's what we're doing. <clears throat> Haven't been here for the last six weeks. Yes. You, you sit there and chow down. I will At the tail end of the 90s, the super titles were given to new editor Eddie Berganza, and a new creative direction was announced. Whilst the titles had weathered numerous editorial changes before, there was always a feeling that they were following the templates set down post-crisis, and it all felt like these were the continuing adventures of the same character. Not so as the 90s gave way to the new millennium. Berganza assigned disparate creative teams that, at first, tried to follow the interlinked continuity of the previous administration, but it quickly became apparent they were more interested in telling their own stories, and the triangle numbering system designed by editor Mike Carlin to give the readers a reading order was quietly dropped. Other changes, too, made it clear that this was a stealth reboot. Writer Jeff Loeb had made no secret of his detaste for the post-crisis revamp of Superman, and his first storyline he started upping Superman's powers to pre-crisis levels, ostensibly to prepare for the Our Worlds at War crossover series. He followed this with a storyline that attempted to undo the post-crisis Man of Steel origin. In addition, the new millennium was kicked off with a crossover series entitled Y2K, in which a new upgraded version of Brainiac reboots the city of Metropolis to be a veritable city of tomorrow with futuristic technology in a storyline that when read today is ironically very dated. Other crossovers like Emperor Joker and Our Worlds at War would be more successful, but the biggest impact of this era would be the swearing in of Lex Luthor as President of the United States of America, an idea I maintain is as dumb as it sounds, but was handled moderately well by the creative teams. As the decade proceeded, however, it would become apparent that DC had little idea what to do with the Man of Steel, and this would be arguably his most turbulent decade yet. Externally, there would be numerous lawsuits to contend with, as the heirs of Jerry Siegel claimed they wanted a bigger slice of super pie. Internally, there would be another attempt at retelling the definitive origin again in Mark Wade's Superman Birthright series from 2006, which has the distinction of being one of the shortest-lived official origins. Another attempt to retell the origin was Jeff Johns and Gary Frank's Secret Origin in 2009, which lasted an even shorter period of time than Birthright only wasn't as good. Another attempt at stealth rebooting the characters would occur with the One Year Later stunt in 2006, but instead of leading to a new golden era, it would lead to one of the most creatively frustrating, as for the first time in the characters' history, stories would be delayed, issues postponed, and the last-minute fill-in story abounded. Even bringing in fan-favourite writer Jeff Johns and the director of the 1978 Superman movie Richard Donner couldn't provide the comics with a feeling of stability. 
In fact, whenever a fan-favourite writer got a hold of Superman in this era, the results were invariably disappointing. The aforementioned birthright in no way represents Mark Wade's best work. Johns and Donner seem to feel that reheating a 30-year-old movie made for innovative comics, and even the normally reliable Kurt Busiek stumbled whilst writing the character. The biggest disappointment of the year, however, was Brian Azzarello and Jim Lee's turgid For Tomorrow arc, which proves once again that just because you're a much-heralded Vertigo writer, it doesn't mean you can write superheroes. One writer that booked this trend, at least as far as Superman is concerned, was Grant Morrison. And, long-time listeners beware, I am about to say nice things about Grant Morrison. He, along with Mark Wade, Mark Millar and Tom Payer, pitched a radical new take on Superman in the year 2000, which was sadly rejected. Prophetically, it was called Superman Now in Morrison's notes, which Marvel must have put in their back pocket for later. Morrison managed to take a lot of his ideas and parlay them into All-Star Superman, a 12-issue miniseries that, on occasion, achieves moments of staggering beauty. Published from January 2006 through October 2008, Morrison manages to distill everything he likes about Superman and turns in a piece of work that, unlike a lot of other Morrison texts, manages to make both sense and tell a heartfelt story. It was plagued by delays due to the artist being Frank Quitley, but is far and away Morrison's best straightforward superhero character work and a series even people who aren't fans of Morrison can enjoy. The downside seems to be he said everything about Superman in this series, leading to a frustrating action comics run a few years later. Superman Batman would debut as a new team-up title starting in 2003 that would feature the adventures of, well, Superman and Batman. The mid-noughties would also see a brand new crisis within the DC Comics community, in which Superman was brainwashed by Maxwell Lord as a means of Lord to protect himself, or forcing someone to kill him, which would free Superman out of this control, but would also be filmed and shown on every television in the world. Wonder Woman chose the latter, of course, and the events led to Infinite Crisis, which started with the return of Earth 2 Superman, Lois Lane, Alexander Luthor, and Superboy Wine. I'm sure you meant Superboy Prime. No, I didn't. <laughs> Old Superman tries to bring back his world, the Golden Age um, world, which was destroyed in Christ on Infinite Earths, and make Lois' last days as happy as he can. However, under the influence of Luthor, Superboy kills a bunch of Titans, including our Superboy, Connor Kent, and attempts to kill everyone, because he's the only Superboy and he's pure and good and nobody else deserves to live in this world. After Superman and Superman fight according to superhero terms and conditions, the two fight Superboy and fly him to the ruins of Krypton, which allows the two to beat Superboy, but not before he kills Earth-2 Superman and takes away Earth-1 Superman's powers. After the crisis ended, our Superman put the costume away for good, or what he thought was for good, and lived his life as Mildman and Clark Kent until his powers returned after the event 52 an extravagant weekly series. And this really was the end of post-Christ on Infinite Earth Superman. And I thought the point of the crisis was to make it less confusing. No. (laughs) In other media, however, Superman was thriving, albeit in altered form. October 2001 saw the debut of Smallville, a hugely successful retelling of Superman's early days that managed to run for an incredible ten years. Tom Welling took on the title role of Clark Kent, but was never allowed, or contractually forbidden, to play Superman himself. I find Smallville to be incredibly frustrating, containing some of the finest actors to 
ever play various characters, linked with some truly terrible drawn-out stories. Formerly one of the Dukes of Hazard, John Scheider makes a wonderful Jonathan Kent, and Superman 3's Lana Lang, actress Annette O'Toole, made an equally excellent Martha Kent. Erica Durant may be my favourite live-action Lois after Phyllis Coates, and John Glover made an excellent Luther, even if it wasn't Lex. Laura van der Noot, however, possessed none of the girl-next-door playfulness that Supergirl Kara Zor-El needs to be endearing, confusing sex pot with adorable, and the less said about Kristen Kruick as Lana Lang, an actress I quite liked in Chuck, the better. Ultimately, though, I feel Smallville is the very epitome of Hollywood saying, let's take this stupid comic stuff and show them how it's done. But the show has a large fan following, and the adventures of Tom Welling and Erica Durant continue every month in the Smallville Season 11 comic book. Far more faithful was the Bruce Timm produced animated series. Whilst the Superman show ended with a gloriously downbeat final two-parter in 2000, the Justice League cartoons, which featured a number of great Superman episodes, ran through to 2006. A number of animated movies featuring Superman would also be released directly to DVD throughout the decade, and their adaptation of the death of Superman, entitled Superman Doomsday, is still the best-selling of that line. Sadly, actor Christopher Reeve passed away on October 10th, 2004 from complications due to his illness, but not after appearing in two excellent guest spots on Smallville as Dr. Virgil Swan. Reeve would be but one actor associated with Superman to appear on the show, which also boasted appearances from Dean Kane, Margot Kidder, Mark McClure, Terence Stamp, and, continuing the tradition of previous eras Lois Lane playing the mother of the next, Terry Hatcher as Lois's mum. The big event of the decade, however, was the June 21st, 2006 release of the first live-action Superman movie since 1987, Superman Returns, which was dedicated to Reeve and his wife Dana. After numerous false starts and failures, X-Men director Brian Singer resurrected the Man of Steel from Hollywood hell to deliver a film perhaps more frustrating than Smallville. Brandon Routh and Kevin Spacey were both excellent as Clark Kent, Superman and Lex Luthor respectively, but Kate Bosworth and the normally reliable Frank Langella were lacklustre as Lois Lane and Perry White. The script also perhaps could have done with a rewrite, but given Warner Brothers' past with the Superman property, the fact that the film got made at all is a tribute to Singer's tenacity. Despite pre-production starting on a sequel, this was postponed in light of a Ground Zero reboot of the movie scheduled for release in summer 2013, in which Henry Cavill will take over as Superman in a movie entitled The Man of Steel. The comics, then, were a mixed bag this decade, a decade that largely has no real identity or through-line unlike other years. To that end, I've chosen quite a mixture of stories from mostly the first half of the decade, with one exception. The first book we're covering tonight, Action Comics 765, has a cover date of May 2000 and still has a triangle number on it. The Joker and Harley Quinn take Metropolis with no mercy, claims the cover, as Harley kicks the spit out of Lex's bodyguard Mercy Graves, whilst the Joker rejoices in the background. Superman and Lex are tied together like a latter-day Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis. What do you think of that one, Michael? It's very focused on Harley Quinn's high kick. Yeah, it's alright. It's... it's I was just going to say it's alright. It's, it's okay, isn't it? Yeah. I like it because it's got the Joker and Harley Quinn on it, which was. Uh, <laughs> it's always amusing to me when Superman takes on the Joker. Yeah. Because it's, he's it's just. Batman, you know? And with that, but also Superman is completely ill equipped to deal with the Joker. Yeah. The Joker just. Superman just can't handle the Joker's complete non linear think processes. Yeah. So it's always funny when they do go up against each other, and I do like it that they kept it to a minimum. 
I think this is only the second time he went up against the Joker since um, John Byrne did it in an issue after the crisis. I think. Yeah. I could be wrong. Apart from death in the family. Well, in the Batman books when Jason Todd died and he didn't really actually go up against the Joker the did Joker he? Joker had already gone by the time Superman showed up but also no, Batman wants to kill the Joker and Superman stops him because he's got diplomatic immunity yeah so they don't I don't think they actually have a a meeting per se A Clown Comes to Metropolis was written by Joe Kelly penciled by Cano inked by Marlo Alquiza is this when they started farming it out to funny countries where <laughs> they work for minimum wage? The DC sweatshop. Yeah. Glenn Whitmore coloured it and uh, Richard Starkins lettered. Maureen McTeague was the associate editor and Eddie Berganza was the proper editor. The Joker arrives in Metropolis wearing a bald cap. Hijinks will ensue. Clark tries to shave with his heat vision but Lois is a real witch about it causing Clark to fall asleep in a news conference in Montreal, Canada. In Metropolis, Jimmy hits the signal watch as the Joker is apparently returning the favour for Lex's recent visit to Gotham City in No Man's Land and has declared war on the Luther boy. Superman arrives, coughing like he's hacking up a lung, before Harley and Mercy can get into it and the Joker sets his hyenas on the Man of Steel. Whilst Harley and Mercy get into a cat fight and Lex almost falls for the acid flower gag, Superman fights off the hyenas with effort as the Joker reveals his plan, a gigantic doll disguised as a baby Lena Luthor falling at them. Superman saves them, but the police arrive and the Joker waves his diplomatic immunity card at them as Mercy and Harley continue to fight. The big doll wreaks havoc, but before it can do whatever the Joker wanted it to do, Lex manages to disrupt its power supply. Impressed by Lex's moxie, the Joker decides to leave, having shown Metropolis that Lex is a big old lunatic, as he has used a device that has shorted out all electrical equipment in the immediate radius, leaving Superman busy stopping falling planes, and he dumps Harley and blows town. After saving the day, Clark returns to the planet, where he receives a note from Lois saying, She's leaving. Page one is just two middle-aged women chatting while they're out walking the dog. It's quite funny dialogue, though. I quite liked Pedro and I thought it was quite humorous. Well, it's very Joe Kelly dialogue. Yeah, yeah, and he he is good at the pithy dialogue. Mm. I'll give him that. Um, It's not as funny as the two-page splash. Cado draws an interesting Joker, and I have to say I liked the bald cap. Where the story really shines is Kelly's dialogue, which is top-notch in this story, particularly with the Joker. You got poodle in my hyena! is but the first of a series of great gags from the Joker in this issue. I was particularly fond of the fact that Harley Quinn has two balloons stuffed down her top, which she lets go later on. Mm. <laughs> that was hysterical. <laughs> the bottom of page three, there's a great fourth wall-breaking gag. Where having taken the picture of the middle-aged ladies whose poodle is just eaten and somehow made them bald, the Joker looks directly at the reader and tells them, Wave at the readers, ladies! They're paying the rent! He does this quite a few times in this issue. He does look at the reader quite a lot in this. Without actually referencing the fact that he's breaking the fourth wall, Mm. he does do it an awful lot. Which I always find quite amusing as long as it's not overdone. Yeah. It can be something that grates on your nerves a bit. Harley Quinn was, of course, introduced as the Joker's sassy sidekick in Spandex in Batman the Animated Series, and was so popular she graduated to the comics, first in Batman Adventures, which was based upon the TV series, and then the DC Universe proper. Was everyone who was created in the animated series adapted into the comics? 
Because Rene Montoya did as well. Yeah, yeah, Rene Montoya made it over. And although Mr. Freeze wasn't invented for the animated series, his origin from the animated series was, over. was ported over to the comics, yeah. But the animated series is just, for me, is still the perfect distillation of Batman. Yeah. I could even argue a case the Batman animated series may be better than the comics. It's one of those rare adaptations that is certainly as equal to the source material and the thing was frequently better in many ways. Well, in some ways, yeah, but then you had your episodes that weren't as good. I mean, with the same in the comics, you have comics that aren't as good. Mm. But with comics, you have variety depending on your writers and your artists. But with the anime series, you just... It all looked the same yeah. until they revamped it. Which is fine with the animated series and the confines of an animated series. With a, a, a comic, it's it's quite interesting to pick up a different issue and see how a different artist or writer interprets that character. Yeah, but I think the animated series scored from being able to cherry-pick and it had a cohesive continuity. Yeah. I think that's that why... continuity for the most part, though, really. It, it kind of had its own... You got more into that in the second version... Yeah. when Dick Grayson had become Nightwing and they had the new Robin and all that stuff. There was more of a continuity then. Yeah. And certainly as they got into Batman Beyond, they, they, they started building up the mythology. But, no, yeah, I see what you mean. But, yeah. Oh, Terry McGuinness again. That's another one who was Terry McGuinness. into the comics. Yeah, Terry McGuinness made it over to the comics, didn't he? Yeah. I don't think anything from the Superman animated series made it over to the comics, did it? I'm not sure, actually. I don't know the Superman one as well. I like the Superman one. It's, it's shorter, but I don't know it as well. It's not as... Well, they only showed the first series over here, I think. Yeah, I remember watching it in America, actually. Yeah, we, well, I bought all the DVDs in America as well yeah. when we were over there. Um, page four is really sad. Yeah. Superman tries to shave using his heat vision before which, Lois cuts him off at the legs. Which I, I quite liked how they did that, the storytelling. Whereas yeah, it's a nine-panel grid. Yeah, and it's essentially all told through the art. Yeah, which we don't really get anymore. It starts off with a black panel, and then we just see the two red dots of Superman's heat vision, mm. which lights up the room, which is a really good colouring job. Yeah. That it's essentially... The, the, the light from the room is all coming from his heat vision that he's using to shave. And then Lois comes in, being a snarky cow. It does beg the question, where does she go to? She just walks past him and... Did she just go in there to bitch at him? Maybe she was in the shower. But you, you don't see that, though, because he stood... The shower's on the left-hand side, from what we're seeing, and she walks to the right. Oh, right, yeah. Well, yeah, maybe she just came in to bitch at him. Fair enough. Because Lois and Clark were having marital difficulties at this point, which was, was really well handled. Well, I was getting that, but I didn't know what was going on, so... Well... Uh, Jeff Loeb did a really good job with this storyline. He made you really think Lois and Clark were having problems and Lois was being a real bitch. Mm. Um, it was ultimately revealed that this is the parasite and Lois has been kidnapped. Right, okay. Uh, and I know what you're thinking. And you're right, right. <laughs> that sounds terrible. But they did such a good job of making you feel for Superman at this point as he does everything. Mm. to try and save his marriage but Parasite's obviously not interested yeah that when we find out that it's the Parasite and not Lois instead of going oh come on you actually do go oh thank god <laughs> so that's how good a job they did of it yeah. the only misstep I would say with this one this means that Clark is sleeping with the Parasite <laughs> yeah which they just kind of glossed over <laughs> secondly though there is an issue where the Parasite in Lois guys seduces Lex Luthor 
I'm just going to let that rattle around in your head for a bit as we move along <laughs> to the next page. Well, um, page four. I, too, have never thought of the smell um, after Superman's super shaves. I never really... Because I suppose it would smell like burning flesh. Yeah. Never really given any thought, to be honest with you. Well, you don't pay much of a thought, but when something's like this... Yeah, when it points it out to you, yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's actually quite a good point, that. Uh, Page five. I find Lex slightly campy in this issue. Do you? Yeah, I mean, I get that this entire issue is played for laughs. I think that's pretty undeniable. Oh, yeah. Um, but having the new Lexcorp building have chairs that flip backwards and drop the occupants into a vat of acid. He's a James Bond villain. Yeah, yeah he's a James Bond villain. It doesn't well, really suit Lex. Doesn't he say it wasn't him, it was the guy, but it was his successor? Yeah, it wasn't him that did it, but Who the fact that, that they got it. I don't rightly remember, because this is you're now following the Y2K story arc, aren't you, where Metropolis has been made into this city of the future different. by the Brainiac B13 virus. Well, Lex Luthor's Howard is bigger than anything else. Yeah. So in the Y2K storyline, mm-hmm. Brainiac invaded and he upgraded the entire city. So he's doing them a favour? Yeah, essentially. Right. And Luthor comes in and they get rid of Brainiac because he planned on doing it to the entire planet. Right. But... But Metropolis remains as this city of tomorrow with hover cars and such, and it's it's not something I ever really bought because again you're one step away from removed from reality. Yeah. So with Superman, you're always being asked to buy that there is this guy who exists in this world that can do all these things, and for me, it's always one of those things that if Superman's grounded in a world that is recognisably real then it works better that there's this fantastical element to it. Yeah. When you, you whack him into a, a 25th century environment, it's one step too far for me on the suspension of disbelief thing. Do you know what I mean? Well, what if it was like that from the beginning? I don't know. See, I probably could have caught with it, but he wasn't, was he? No. So, it's one of them very strange things. Um, the line, I am Lex, hear me bore, yeah. was very funny. <laughs> As two of his uh, jokerized people come into the office. Uh, page six, I liked that Clark being such a prominent reporter is essentially he's become the news, being the source of gossip amongst the paparazzi concerning his relationship with Lois. I don't recall Superman needing sleep pre-crisis. And I don't actually think he needs to sleep post-crisis. So the fact that he's knackered here is playing both into his emotional state and the fact that as part of the ongoing narrative, Superman is being affected in some way that's making him ill. Well, you said it was Parasite. Well, later on we'll learn that this is kryptonite poisoning. Oh, right. So Superman is being poisoned by kryptonite. Lois is the Parasite in disguise. So you wouldn't make more sense for because of his prolonged exposure to Parasite. That he's um, draining his powers. Yeah. Page 7 through 8 is again spread across two pages. Some of the Joker's gags here are very funny. The dialogue playing to Kelly's strength as a writer and the Mercy Graves-Harley Quinn confrontation is gold. The Joker makes the underpants on the outside gag, which I have to say seemed a little predictable for the Joker. Mm. I, would have, I wouldn't have thought that he would have gone for such an obvious gag. A lot of the um, text looks like it was added on after. Well, are they not into the era now where everything's done on computer? Yeah. So the balloons are added onto the art. A lot of it looks like they're almost coming out of the um, balloons. Yeah. See, they're onto the thing now where the balloons aren't pasted up. Mm. And they're they're, they're splotted on later on. Um, Page 9, both Lex and the Joker's reaction to the hyena has been able to hurt Superman was worthy of a grin. 
you hurt him with hyenas? Kind of makes you believe in miracles, don't it? And then the Joker turns around to, to squirt him with his Joker yeah. flower, which I thought was very funny. Uh, Marcy versus Harley round one. I do get what Kelly was going for here, but Harley versus Mercy isn't particularly sexy, which I think it's supposed to be. Yeah. And I found it funny when Harley took her top off to reveal the balloon she's got stuffed down there. And the firefighters watching have great facial expressions. But I think they're finding this whole thing far more of a turn on than we, the reader, are. And not doing the jobs. And not doing the jobs. Well, there's no fire, I would imagine. As of yet. Um, page 11 through 12 is again spread across two pages, Lex and the Joker having some fun banter, as Lex learns never to trust the Joker, and he spins around and hurls a face full of acid from his flower. Fortunately, Lex's bodyguards are on the ball and save Lex's hide. I love the Joker, though. It's always time for Jenga. He's very, um, random. Throughout this entire issue, isn't it? Well, Joe Kelly as well, but the Joker, obviously. There's also a subtle nod to the ongoing story arc with Lois having the same cough that Superman has. Uh, Page 13. Alright, we're into the main body of the story here. Now, okay, I'm getting this as a comedy. Mm -hmm. The whole point of this is the Joker shows up. The Mm -hmm. plot is secondary. Yes. What exactly was the point of the huge robotic Lena? Why not? She falls from a plane... Smashes a few buildings, and then Superman gets smacked around by her before Lex saves the day. What What was her point? What was she supposed to do? Was she supposed to explode? Well, it's the Joker. Does it have to do anything? It does seem rather... random, which I suppose is the point. Yeah. Isn't it? Alright, okay. Where does the Joker get these wonderful ties? Um, well, you know he's diplomatic... Karak uh, pay for them! Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> It comes out of the Karaki budget. He just doesn't tell them what for. He says, well, uh, <laughs> you know that team you've been putting up? Well, um, there's, there's something I want him to do for me. I want him to build a giant robot baby that I'm just going to drop over his yeah. head. The police car on page 14 looks just like a police car from Back to the Future 2. It does, yeah. The hover car. Page 14, also, the Joker flops out his diplomatic immunity card which he received in Death in the Family from Batman 426 through 429 from 1988, where after killing the second Robin, Jason Todd, the Joker received diplomatic immunity from Karak. Well, do Karak not get annoyed at bailing him out all the time on this diplomatic immunity? It looks bad on their country. I don't even remember how he managed to wangle diplomatic immunity. But he's going around, he's just essentially destroying the entire part of... Of a major metropolitan yeah. city. He's threatened... Is he the, the president yet? Not yet, no. Well, he's, he just threatened... A prominent citizen. A prominent citizen. Put put other prominent citizens in the way of harm, and then Karak come along and bail him out. You don't get bored of doing that all the time and just let him go. I don't, I don't remember how long the diplomatic immunity thing goes on for. I, I was surprised to see it still here. On page 15, if you ignore Harley and, and Mercer... You can see that someone in the crowd is wearing a Kingdom Come Superman hoodie. Oh, yes, oh, yes. There are also a bit inconsistent as to where the rips in her costume are. She's quite clearly got a rip over her ass, though, but it's gone in the next panel. Although I do like oh, Harley's... No, it's that one there on her. No, yeah, that one's there. Yeah, and it's there. See? Yeah. It starts What's that one there, then? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unless that's just a miscoloring error and it's supposed to be a diamond. Well, that doesn't really fit, does it? I do like Harley's quite suggestive line at the bottom of that page, buy me a pony, I'll give you a ride. Mm. Which made me smile. Because it works on both levels. It does. 
which was I, I liked it uh, page 16 the scene where the Joker makes Superman think he's destroyed his hand was quite hysterical mm. and there's a reference to Commissioner Gordon shooting the Joker in the leg during No Man's Land I mention this because the editor couldn't be bothered doing like a footnote explaining how that happened uh, Superman threatening to hold medical assistance gets the response from the Joker that's very dark night of him uh, page 16 I do quite like that the Joker's a fan of ACDC well, he sings, well, not the lyrics, but... Back in Karak, I hit the sack. It's been so long, I'm glad to be back. Yeah. <laughs> we really should get the tune out and do that. Back in Karak! I can't, I'm just out of tune to that, because my voice is so... Uh, page 18, Superman didn't even do nothing. Lex serves the day. Granted, the EMP he uses to destroy the Lena Luther robot causes planes, trains, cars, pacemakers and traffic signals to all fail, meaning that although Lex saved Metropolis from the Joker, he causes more problems than he solved, but as far as the general populace are concerned, Lex saved the day, yep. not Superman. Voting into presidency now. Yeah, well, it's pretty soon after this, he does become President Lex. Mm-hmm. Page 21, once again... The Joker throws Harley to the wolves, leaving her to take the fall for all his crimes, and he buggers off with two bimbos for a night of fun. I'm willing to bet neither one of them live to see tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I hope they're paired very, very well. And on the final page, page 22, Clark claims that he was on the plane that Superman saved, and that's how he got the story, which was clever. But what happened to a Superman that was six foot tall, 22 pounds, has black hair, blue hair, and never lies that's quite blatantly a lie yeah isn't it and then he gets a note from Lois saying he's leaving forever I quite like that one mm. oh but sure very little actually happens the Joker shows up and causes havoc but Superman meeting the Joker was still enough of a rarity at this point that it was fun although I still wouldn't like it had to happen too often the Joker doesn't really suit Superman as a villain and Superman always ends up looking like he's playing catch up whenever they do meet in addition Superman has enough prank based villains he doesn't need another one that being said it was rare enough to make the grade here as although Marvel villains regularly traded heroes when I was a kid DC villains didn't really do that a lot so it makes it interesting when it does happen Kelly does a good job with the dialogue although I find it difficult to believe someone of Lex's stature would be seen casually walking around Metropolis even with an armed guard and this is much more of a Lex Joker show than it really is Superman. He kind of shows up, is made to look like an idiot and goes away again. And I picked this because it really highlights the omnipresent nature of Lex in this era, where the writers started focusing more on him than on the hero. And that led us down the path of exploring that Lex is actually a good guy, just misguided, that was so boneheaded that we're not going to talk about it. What did you think about that one, Michael? I didn't think it was all that good. No, I think... The, the main problem I had with it was honestly um, Kelly's dialogue. See, I got that bits of it were funny, but other bits I thought were trying too hard to be funny, and that didn't make it as funny for me, really. No, that's a valid criticism. It does try very hard to be funny. But then a lot of his stuff does. Yeah, and see, like I said, that issue exists to be a comedy. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with doing a comedy issue. Superman isn't played for laughs in that story. Mm. The situation that he's in is funny. And, but he does end up coming across as a bit of a buffoon. Yeah. Because he, he's not really equipped to handle the Joker. Whereas some, some of his other stuff, like, say, Deadpool... Yeah. ...which is another one where it's purposely played for laughs, was actually really good and had, like, very serious, dramatic subplots in it. But Deadpool is a comedy character in a comedy comic that occasionally gets serious, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas Superman is, by and large, serious with occasional funny bits... 
Yeah. That's, a, that's the trouble with Tribbles of Superman. It's an out-and-out out comedy. Yeah, but the, the thing with is with Kelly trying to be too funny that he isn't funny, whereas in Deadpool it's the same, but in that it works. Okay, fair enough. We have another Joe Kelly story coming up next, <laughs> which I'm reading from my greatest stories ever told, Superman volume from, um, God, I don't know, when was this published, Michael? No idea. 2004. 2004. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm glad you're here to tell me these things. Chewie, take the professor in the back and plug him into the hyperdrive. Uh, it actually appeared in Action Comics 775 with a March 2001 cover day. It was again written by Joe Kelly with art by Doug Mount and Lee Bermigeo. A plethora of Incas helped out, which kind of implied that they were up against the dreaded deadline doom with this one. The Incas are Tom Nugan, or Guyan, Dexter Vines, Jim Royale, Jose Marzan, Wade Von Grobadger, and Wayne Forsher. In Tripoli, a savage new superhero team, the Elite, have taken out a terrorist faction in bloody fashion with immense loss of life. The news media wastes no time in pronouncing them heroes, with only the Daily Planet seemingly concerned about the brutality of the Elite's actions. Jack Ryder, reporter for the Daily Star, proclaims that the era of Superman's more compassionate form of resistance is at an end. The Elite's manifesto is downloaded to every computer in the world, basically saying, be good or else. And Superman wonders, has the world moved on? An attack in downtown Tokyo by the Samurai Roshu, genetically modified metahumans working for an isolationist government faction, leaves Superman aghast when the Elite arrive, leaving nobody alive. They even manage to incapacitate the Man of Steel when a member of the elite, Colecast, stops his electrons from flowing. The leader, Manchester Black, explains that he himself has never referred to the elite as heroes, more that reality has become a mite greyer than sitcoms and comics and good pounding the snot out of evil in bright tights would imply, and none of that really cuts it in the morally ambiguous world. Superman argues that this may be true, but morality has to count for something. Black ignores him, and later Jonathan Kent tells Clark that the elite suck at him. Clark says they made him look like an idiot, but Jonathan acknowledges that government corruption, terrorism, and an inefficient prison system have made people angry. Clark asks that to fight a demon, does he really have to become one? Jonathan says Superman just needs to lead by example, but if worse comes to worst, he can kick all the ass. Right? Over the next few days, Superman sees a populace that seems to be welcoming the Elite's actions. Even when he manages to prevent an alien incursion, the Elite arrive and order the aliens that Cletes eliminated. Superman loses it and punches out one of the Elite in front of the nation's media. The Elite arrange a final showdown, and against Lois's objections, he accepts. Lois asks why can't the JLA or some such deal with them, and Superman says they are deliberately targeting him. Lois says he isn't exactly objecting. Superman says that he overheard a number of children playing and one of them wanted to be in the elite because it would be fun to kill bad guys. Fun to kill. They have to see somebody with the courage of his convictions who will make a stand. And even die? asks Lois. She even expresses the opinion that she doesn't think Superman can win in an all-out battle with the elite. At dawn, Superman requests the battle not take place in a populated area, and the Elite transports them to Io. With a satellite communication system beaming the confrontation to the world, Superman gives the Elite one last chance to surrender without bloodshed. The Elite respond with bloodshed, easily defeating the Man of Steel. They retire back to their cave where they hear a voice. I made a mistake, it says. I treated you like people. I 
was wrong. And with that, Superman strikes back. He takes out the entire team in no time, with Black expressing disgust that Superman actually thought his plan out before confronting Black directly. Superman performs a lobotomy on Black, excising his power. Black weeps like a small child who's fallen off his bike. Black states that Superman has accomplished nothing. By killing his team, he has shown the world that he is no different than they are, and Superman agrees, which is why he's done nothing of the kind. Dreams, he says, elevate a people. A people need heroes to dream about and aspire to be. And as long as the dream lives, Superman will keep on fighting. Whee. Page one. Um, four panels all the way down the page of Superman pootling around at different times throughout the day. What was he doing? We hear all these news reports that this stuff's happening in Libya with terrorist attacks and collateral damage by the Libyan army. And, and Has he done anything? Um, well, maybe he's flying over there, but then again, he spends 12, no, not 12, he seven hours flying to this country when he can fly around the earth super, super fast to go yeah. back the time. So I didn't get what he was, he was doing on that first page, he was just pootling around. Uh, page two and three, though, was an excellent two-page splash of a gorilla with its ribcage torn apart and loads of devastation and destruction. Mm. Originally, I thought this was Gorilla Grodd. Yeah. Which was, would have been a shame well, for Gorilla Grodd to end up dead like that, wouldn't it? It would, but this splash page alone shows that the issue is going to be a commentary on the comics of the time, particularly war analysis. Yes. it is. Oh, very definitely. Um, in more ways than one. Page four, the art style changes substantially for the next few pages, which have some confusing elements. Whilst the dialogue and the Daily Planet stuff is all pretty good, on the next page, Clark gets into a conversation with Jack Ryder who looks exactly like the pre-crisis Clark Kent, right down to the suit. Mm. Jack Ryder was, of course, the Steve Ditko created The Creeper, an incredibly oddball character who had a great visual. I found that page slightly confusing, especially when Clark and Jack are talking to each other. Yeah. Are they supposed to look exactly the same? I have no idea. I don't just the art. Possibly, because I don't remember Jack Ryder looking like Clark Kent before, well, especially when Ditko drew him. Was Jack Ryder supposed to be the douchey kind of character? Do you know, I don't remember because I've not read Ditko's The Creeper. Because I know him from the animated series and the games. Yeah. But uh, were, but then I've I recently read this and 52 where he's very much the kind of douchebag type of character, which yeah. contrasts against... Yeah, he was in 52, wasn't he? Yeah. I remember that vaguely. I remember reading 52. Uh, page 5, Lex is still president in this story and makes a cameo for no real reason. Other than to show that he's still the president. Other than to show Lex Luthor's around, yeah. But he, he doesn't really service any purpose in this. You could rip that page out and it wouldn't make any difference mm. to the overall storyline. Page 6, 7. See, this is where we're going to get slightly controversial. The mm. problem I have here is I actually have no problem with the Elite's manifesto as it's laid out here. Mm. They ostensibly say that they will go after anyone who treats anyone like trash. And nobody from the UK would say trash for a start, but to further their own petty aims. This isn't that far away from Superman's mission statement back when he started out in the 30s. He had no problem taking the law into his own hand on many an occasion. Although there is a good dialogue exchange here, good is too small for them, says Steele. They are a force of nature, to which Superman replies, so is the bubonic plague, but that doesn't make it a good guy, which I thought was quite good. And I quite like that in this initial outlet, Steele was on the elite side. Yeah. Which I thought made an interesting discussion between him and Steel. This whole sequence was really good. Steel notes they made it past the bulletproof skin. Mm. 
which means they got under Superman's skin without actually throwing a punch. And Superman tries to brush it off, but the fact that he asks the question, has the world moved on, shows that they've affected him. I thought this was a really well-written scene. Kelly manages to have Superman be self-doubting without it coming across as self-pitying, which is a fine line to walk. Yeah. But the thing with this is, it is right that the world has changed. Yeah. But, like... In Nightfall, it's not necessarily a good thing. No. Like, the elite are Gene Paul. Do you think? Yeah. Because he's doing the right thing. But he's going about it all wrong. He's going about yeah. Right. Okay, fair enough. That's a, that's a valid viewpoint. I hadn't considered that. Uh, page nine. Why is the repeated dialogue about attacking Tokyo in panels one and three? Um, it says, attacking downtown Tokyo with a question on everyone's lips. Will the elite make a show? And then that's repeated in panel three. Maybe it's it's maybe it's like Sky News. <laughs> it's just on a constant loop. Yeah, <laughs> showing everywhere in a constant loop. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Pages ten and eleven. Superman is taken out by having his electrons stop flowing, and we're introduced to the elite in a four-page action sequence. So confusing and muddled, I couldn't tell what was happening and to who. Yeah. What did you think? I I got it. It's, yeah. it's from Superman's point of view. You can't see what's going on, but everyone's dying around him. But you don't see who's doing the killing. No, you don't see the elite at all, did you? Because they're so fast, and then yeah. Whereas Superman just sits there on his knees, doing very little, mm. and there are decom- decapitated heads everywhere. Was Dan Dio in charge at this point? Uh, no, not yet. I don't think. Okay, fair enough. Um, page thirteen: a splash shot of the elite. He doesn't really make any effort to tell us who they are, does he? No. I'd forgive this if he spent the rest of the issue giving these people even rudimentary characteristics, but he doesn't. No. And the, the elite are essentially the authority in everything but name, though. It, Which is the point of the story. Well, yeah, but they are exactly the same, right down to Jenny Sparks. I mean, Manchester Black <laughs> T-shirt. And how do we know he's British? Well, if his name wasn't a clue, he's wearing his flag. No one in England is named Manchester. <laughs> I'm sorry, no. Um, kudos to Joe Kelly on this page, though. Manchester Black's dialogue is such a wonderful send-up of that kind of pretentious sci-fi bollocks that Grant Morrison writes. Um, the actual dialect is awful. We get a huge info dump about the elite headquarters, and instantly Black is depicted as being someone who cuts out a sentient being's heart under the pretense of being humane, which makes him instantly the bad guy. Yeah, <clears throat> and in a story as morally ambiguous as this one is trying to be there shouldn't be a bad guy if there's a bad guy it isn't morally ambiguous anymore no. there should be deliberate shades of grey we should sympathise with the elite and the position whilst at the same time understanding Superman's position characterising black like this so early in the story was just a huge misstep I don't think the narrative ever recovers from in my opinion. No, and because from here on you are just yeah. going against him. Yeah, and that's, that's, that negates the point of the story. Mm. Superman says, what's next, Verbrack and Lebensraum? To Black, who doesn't know what Superman says. Basically, he's quoting from Hitler's 1939 speech where Hitler advocates genocide in favour of Germany having the space to need to thrive as a people. It means, roughly, taking the living space we need. Having Superman compare Black to a Nazi is remarkably unsubtle. Mm. Again, you know. I, I thought that was quite funny, in a way. A lot of Superman's dialogue is funny in the sense that 
he's essentially insulting Manchester and the elite, but they don't get it. Yeah, they don't get that he's doing it. Yeah, which, once again, shows who's right and wrong, because the elite are just going around killing people with no comprehension of what they're doing, how they're doing, how it affects them, and Superman does. They're not answerable to anybody. Yeah. Um, And the ship, called Bunny, which could be taken as a joke about the carrier looking like a dog, which is the authority ship. Oh, yeah, the authority's big aircraft carrier thing. Yeah. Uh, Page 15. I didn't understand this. Why would wearing a cape make Superman jolly? I don't know. He's not Santa Claus. Are you supposed to understand Manchester? I tried reading his dialogue, but... But Once again, it plays into his character that he just says things that don't make sense to anyone. Yeah. We get a subtle indication that he's a bit of a casual racist, Mm. which is fortunate, because he points out the hat is of Japanese descent, but from the art, I wouldn't have known that. Although we don't really get a good shot of him. Well, no, but from what we do see, the hat looks an awful lot like the drummer, who's another Ellis character from uh, Planetary. Yes, he is. Yeah. yeah, you're right, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't twigged that, yeah, he does look like the drummer. Page 17 through 18, page 17 is a heart-to-heart with Par, which is mainly just to set up that Superman doesn't think he can beat the Elite and knock down, drag out fight, despite the fact he hasn't actually engaged in such a battle and doesn't know exactly what exactly the Elite can do. Page 18 is a heartstring puller as Superman, thanks to his super hearing, hears the populace of Metropolis support the actions of the Elite. The best panel is the kids playing and the one dressed as Superman posing the question, how can I stop you if I can't kill? Which, despite its trappings, is as close to morally ambiguous as the story gets. The panel is adorably cute as well, with one of the kids dressed in Manchester Black's Union flag t-shirt and trench coat, Mm. which was quite cute. Another thing I liked about this was the panel where they're on about... um the Joker and the dog Poopsie, which they call back to the last issue we covered. Yeah. Well, th- there's there's some continuous things in this I like with Kelly's stuff like this and the Clark Kent quote in every issue. Yeah, that begins every issue. Yeah. A quote from his work. Uh, the next page, Here Come the Men in Black. Yeah. Which, that's Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones there, isn't it? Yeah. Except Tommy Lee Jones has a stash in this particular panel. Um, page 20, I could be watching Montel says one of the elite. Was Montel another then-revelant pop culture reference that's now forgotten? Probably. Because I have no idea who Montel is. Does it dare this again? I don't know, because I don't know who he is. I mean, as far as I know, he could be still on the air. Yeah. So that would make it not dated. Mm. But I have no idea who he is. He's Jack Shorehorst. Who? Jack Shorehorst. Apparently Montel Williams is a chat show host. Okay. Who, who knew? <laughs> how, did, how do you know that, love? I he was on TV. Is he still on TV? I don't think so. So it's a dated pop culture then. reference then? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I'm, just I'm glad you knew who he was, because I don't have a clue. Um, page 21. Damn you Americans, let's hear yourself. Yap, wines black, which is ironic, given that he never shuts up. Mm. The hat's powers. Just want to make another a reference here. The hat's powers are implied as being able to talk to streets. Jack Harkmore of The Authority had the power that enabled him to talk to cities. Right. This will play into my closing monologue about this issue. So yeah. I'm glad you're here to tell me all it. Because I've read The Authority. Yes. But I read the Warren Ellis Authority and then lost interest in it when Warren Ellis left. Because, yeah, there is... I've only read those first two or three story arcs. With, with the Warren Ellis stuff, there is a, there is a, there's a lot of contrast with the Mark Miller stuff. I lost interest which, which in the Mark Miller stuff. It's actually trying to do the same thing, but it's written by Mark Miller. But he's not as talented a writer as Warren Ellis. Yeah. 
basically. Um, Superman punches the hat right in her face and doesn't take his head off. Well, I'd say he pulls his punch, but it really doesn't look it like It really doesn't look like he pulls yeah. his punch, does it? Uh, page 23 through 24, the scene with Lois is actually really good. Again, though, Kelly confuses telling with showing. Lois says last week they tore a Neptune moon in half. Why? What for? Yes, it's an awesome display of power, but why was it tore in half? Mm. Would it not have been more fun to actually see that happen? Like the reason that it happened? Um, there's also something I don't like about this word. Lois openly admits she doesn't think Superman could beat them. Which essentially was set up earlier on in the scene with Park Kent, where Park Kent says, you can beat them, can't you? And Superman doesn't answer him. Mm. Again, other than the electron flowing thing, yeah. why does Superman not think he can take these guys out in a fight? Well, I've no idea, just to make the story work. Because well, there you go. <laughs> we all know Superman can beat them, but the only reason nobody believes he can is just to make the story work. Yeah. I, I thought it was out of place with... Jonathan it was Kent, signposted, wasn't it? With Lois Lane and Jonathan Kent especially. Because whilst Jonathan would be... Um, would admit that he doesn't believe he could do it, I don't think Lois would admit, admit it. Well, Jonathan doesn't, though. Jonathan's like, you can beat them up, can't you? And Superman just doesn't answer it. Yeah. So Jonathan thinks he can beat them. Mm. Or at least that, that's how I read it. Um, I do wonder what ratings the fight between the Elite and Superman got. And if they had a, a, sla- a slogan and a catchphrase, the brouhaha on Jupiter <laughs> would make an excellent one. <laughs> like the thriller in Manila. <laughs> well, that'd be quite cool. Uh, page 29 through 31. We get three pages seeing the Elite kick the crap out of Superman, with the implication being that they've killed him. Now, we're not naive enough to think that that's the case by any stretch, but Superman reappears on page 33 with no explanation as to how he survived. We get a mention that he planned it all out in advance, something that seems to confuse Manchester Black, who seems baffled by the idea that somebody would plan something out Mm. when he's going into a fight such as this, which just shows a bit how stupid and crap of a leader he is. But we don't get any real word on how Superman survived everything that they did to him. Yeah. Now, if he knew he could survive all of this, then that needs explaining in the story. If Superman survived by careful planning, that also needs explaining. Because Kelly set up on no less than two separate occasions, which you've just mentioned, yeah. that Superman, Lois, and Jonathan were all unsure that he could survive a direct conflict, and yet he does, with no indication of how he does. He just does, and we're just left to accept it, because he's Superman. Well, there's no explanation as to how the member he doesn't kill the members when we have a three-quarter page... Panel of him killing everybody. Of like one of the members exploding. Does it not explode? No, he just says that they're not dead, and then that's it. He leaves it there. But yeah, you're right. He doesn't say how he pulled that off. So I guess they're disabled if you can still make a head function without a body. <laughs> well, maybe he stitches it back on. <laughs> um, Superman's spe- speech on page 34 didn't make any sense to me. On one hand, it's a meta-commentary on the whole subject of the story. The kill them all and let God sort them out attitude of the elite versus the moral high ground as represented by Superman. But Superman hasn't deconstructed the elite. He hasn't demonstrated that their way is wrong. He's merely exposed them generally as a group, and black in particular as large-scale bullies. He's not really accomplished anything, as the elite will return in a DC book later on down the line. Superman represents the dream, 
And as long as he lives, the dream lives. But Black doesn't stand for anything. So by taking out the elite, he's not destroyed the idea that the way is better. He's just taken out a group of people. Yeah. And it's... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Am I explaining that properly? Yeah. It's like, he represents a dream. And that's fine. Whereas the elite don't The elite don't anything. really represent anything. They represent the way that you can just go in there and kill them all. Mm. But by defeating them, Superman's not defeated that attitude. He's not going to change the people on the street's opinion of them just by defeating them. Yeah. I didn't think. But... You know, um, Superman reveals the elite aren't dead on page 36 and Black isn't really lobotomised which wasn't adequately explained but it was satisfying seeing Superman dispose of Black on a visceral level however I never really believed in Manchester Black when reading The Authority I liked the team and what they were doing Black was never more than just another foe for Superman to vanquish you know what I think? yeah um well, that could just be the thing with the authority who played, even though they're doing essentially the same thing as the elite, the very obviously the good guys in it. Yeah, but they're the good guys in their own story. So in this story, they're the bad guys. Well, they played to be the bad guys. Yeah, where, which even is, though well, they're doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. That well, that this is the point I am struggling quite badly to make. Mm. I mused for a long time onto whether to even include this story. I mean, we've discussed before, I think, initially we weren't going to do a Naughties episode at all, mm -hmm. as I had no real fond memories of this era of the Superman books. In reading and researching for this episode, I realised that I wasn't being entirely fur, and it was really only the back half of the Naughties that I don't care for, with the early Naughties featuring a number of enjoyable stories, even if very few of them, I think, are going to go on to become classics. With that in mind, and with you saying we couldn't just skip a decade because I didn't like it. Yeah. Which was fair enough. If we're going to cover all eras of Man of Steel, then you were right. Then we had to cover the noughties. So it became a choice of narrowing down what we had. It became clear we had to cover this story. Firstly, because it has become recognised as something of a modern classic. And secondly, because of all the stories published in the Superman comics of this time, this really did fit the remit of this particular series of Hey Kids comics. Stories of import, stories with something to say, or just out-and-out -out favourites. And this is easily characterised as two out of the three. That This is a reaction to books like The Authority and the more cynical take on superheroes espoused by writers like Warren Ellis and Mark Millar is obvious. Likewise, Manchester Black is an obvious avatar for any number of cynical British archetypes like Jenny Sparks, John Constantine and even Spike from Buffy the Vampire Slayer from his dress and his dialogue. The problem with Manchester Black as I saw it, was twofold. One, Joe Kelly really doesn't get UK slang or speech patterns. And I suspect he got all the speech patterns from Manchester Black from watching Buffy and reading comics by UK writers, as his attempts to capture the cockney idiom and rhythm of speech is appallingly bad. I tried reading this aloud, which is the best way to get a character's speech rhythm down, and I couldn't do it. His use of substitute swearing is particularly galling, but I understand this is a code dictate. Perhaps if he'd brought in a British writer to script it, it may have had more authenticity. Yeah. What did you think of Black's dialogue? No, I, I did think it was quite unbelievably... D did you? Yeah. It, was, um, it was stereotypically... It was what a, an American thinking cockney yeah. talks like. Like, when you see how we're represented, represented on TV and it's all thatched houses and yeah. bad teeth, 
Yes, which is blatantly incorrect. Yeah. Well, you know, why not why why not reinforce a stereotype mm. when you've got the opportunity to do so? Uh, number two, Black's a straw man. He exists, and by extension his viewpoint exists, simply for Superman to tear that viewpoint down. Now this in and of itself is not a bad thing. I found The Authority to be a well-written and entertaining book whilst Warren Ellis was writing it. Under other less gifted writers it became a caricature. And the overly cynical everyone is scum attitude that became prevalent, not just in The Authority, but in books like The Ultimate, is something that was both ripe for parody and deconstruction. But the existence of The Authority does not negate Superman's point of view. That he represents truth, justice in the American way is not undercut by a super team that operates on the fringes and does the stuff that other people may not want to do. Yeah. That's the whole point of black ops. In fact, I think Jenny Sparks' stated mission was to make a better world. And I suspect she and Superman might have got on quite well. Yeah. But Superman didn't meet the authority and confront the issues head on. In fact... Had that happened, and had it been written by Warren Ellis, we may have really legitimately had a classic Superman comic on our hands. Instead, he confronted this pastiche, cliched version, in which Kelly doesn't even bother filling the reader in on who the rest of the team are. What are the motivations? Hell, even a small moment of character building for any of them would have been nice, but Kelly is content to rely on the audience to know what he's spoofing, and therefore he doesn't bother trying to make the story work on its own merits. He talks a lot about Superman not being able to beat them in a fight without bothering to really explain why. He makes no effort to explain why these people are all together, why they follow Manchester Black. He concentrates all his efforts on making Manchester Black as reprehensible as possible, but fails even in this because a Union flag t-shirt smoking and pretentious dialogue does not a three-dimensional character make. This plays into exactly what you were just criticising it about. Yeah. And I'm very glad you made the point. You were analoguing all of those characters over to authority characters, because you've read the authority a lot more than I have, yeah. or certainly more recently. If you, as a comics reader, were not aware of what he was pastiching, the story doesn't work. No, because it is... Because he not. doesn't bother explaining what these characters are in and of themselves. Yeah. As you pointed out, if they exist as analogues to the authority. So if you're not reading this at the time that it was published and know who the authority are, the story falls flat on its arse. Yeah. So for me, I've read the authority once or twice and I enjoyed it and I put it back on the bookshelf. I didn't know who he was parodying. Mm. So the fact that you had to explain to me who he was parodying means he didn't do a very good job of building the characters up so that the story stands on its own. If he was doing an out-and-out parody, that would be fine. Because yeah. for parody to work, you need to know what he's parodying. But it's not a parody. It's, it's not. No. Yeah. And he's telling us very specific story about the deconstruction of the superhero that should work on its own two feet. Yeah. And doesn't. Well, it's not just the analogs, really, that make this story fall on its own. Well, because th- there's all that word. It's trying to have several shades of grey. Mm. A whole fifty. And trying, <laughs> Fifty shades and of trying to make you think on both sides of the fence, but it doesn't because, like you said, he's the bad guy from the start. Yeah, they they cock up by making Manchester Black a bad guy. Yeah, and therefore a morally ambiguous story does not have clearly defined good and bad guys. 
no. therefore this isn't a morally ambiguous story mm. or if it's trying to be that then it fails he does do an excellent job of sending up the po-faced pseudo-scientific speech that Grant Morrison and Mark Miller write all the time to be fair Morrison does it best yeah. you always get the feeling Miller is ripping off Morrison which he is to an extent and not doing as good a job of it Yeah. so to be fair Morrison does a good job of it um, so fair play to Joe Kelly for that and there is a genuinely funny payoff to the running gag concerning Black's casual racism but ultimately I feel this was a very failed attempt at creating a relevant Superman story more than a decade later Superman is still here redesigned, yes retooled, yes but still here wither the authority mm. it does get credit for predating September 11th 2001 and the Ultimates as this feels very much like a post 2001 superhero comic as well as a response to the Ultimates but I do wonder what would Kelly's response have been had he written this story a few years later it would have been the same really do you so think? like you said it does work as a post 9-11 story did you like it? No, actually, I didn't. But um, I had all the problems with we've already stated. But then it also had the problem with it's it's had all this acclaim surrounding it, saying it's been the greatest Superman story there is. Where it, it's not even uh, it's not a good Superman story, let not, alone a it, great one. Yeah. See, this was my problem with I it. I don't think it'd be all that great if it didn't have Superman in it. It could have been. It could have had someone else. Could have had an analog for Superman. Yeah, but and been told completely independently. Yeah, it's. It was, I didn't get seven, Action 775 when it came out. I'd kind of abandoned the Superman books by that point. I, I then heard all these great stories of it. And there's reams of stuff on the internet about uh, what a brilliant story this is. Yeah. I've got the Superman, the greatest stories ever told trade. Didn't I pick this up in, it was a night four, three or four quid, wasn't it? In yeah. HMV when they have a sale or something. And I picked it up purely because it has this issue in it. Because for some reason, Action Comics 775 is incredibly valuable, mm. for whatever reason. Probably because of that acclaim. Possibly. I thought it was very disappointing the first time I read it. And yeah. I paid no never mind to it. I read it, I thought, really? Greatest? Meh. I put it on the bookshelf and gave it no never mind. When it came time to preparing a bunch of stories for the noughties, we had to cover it. Yeah. Because of, of its acclaim. And I was just left so cold by it. Ultimately, I think it fails as a story about moral ambiguity. Yeah. And it fails as a Superman story. I honestly, genuinely do not understand why that story has become so revered. I really don't. I don't get it. It could just be me that doesn't get it. No, because... Because you didn't get it either. But then, and yeah, you like the authority. But there's a lot of things that have a lot of acclaim and I don't see why. Yeah, well, see, but see, the thing with that is sometimes something will be highly acclaimed and I can understand it yeah. without actually getting it myself. The thing with acclaim is it's most acclaim comes from the media. And stereotypically, I believe the media do not have that vast knowledge of uh, comics. And that reflects the stories themselves. So that issue would have gotten all that acclaim from the media... You've never read a Superman You've story in years. You've never read a Superman story in years, and thus, that's what they think a Superman story is like. Whereas a comic reader would understand that that's not what a super, uh, Superman story would be like. But comic readers acclaim that as one of the greatest Superman stories ever as well. well. That was just the theory I had, but... No, your theory about the media is valid. Yeah. The media will have latched onto that story and probably hyped it up mm. without actually understanding exactly what it is that it's parodying. Oh, pastiche more than parodying. Yeah. 
I, I just didn't get it. I, I can I can understand why people would say that certain films are really really good and highly acclaimed and Oscar winners. And I watch them and go meh, like Crash, yeah, which I thought was meh. But I just I thought that failed on every conceivable level. It turns out, however, mm-hmm. that Mr. Kelly would be put in the rare position of revisiting his story for a different medium. This comic was adapted into an animated movie, Superman vs. The Elite, which premiered on Warner Home Video in June 2012. Again, as I've mentioned, written by Joe Kelly. The film expands upon the ideas presented in the comic rather than being a literal adaptation. And I actually thought it worked much better being 30 minutes into the film before it linked up with the beginning of the comic. Robin Aitken Downs plays Manchester Black with an accent that seems to be some curious hybrid of John Lennon and Ali McCoist, which was both odd and irritating given that Downs is in fact British. And seeing Superman slumming it on an English terrace street was wonderfully surreal, like Christopher Reeve had made an appearance in Coronation Street. The film does a much better job at introducing the elite than the comic does, and that Superman and Manchester Black start out the film as allies helps the emotional impact of the story. In fact, having Superman be the one that helps Black realise his potential before he turns to the dark side gives Superman a much more personal stake in what follows. Where the film really scores over the comic, though, is Black's point of view. In the comic, he's a bad guy from the get-go, who exists purely for Superman to tear down. In the film, his point of view is understandable, and you can actually agree with what he's doing. In other words, a fully believable, three-dimensional character. Likewise, Superman also has a point of view that's understandable and relatable, and the viewer is genuinely torn over who is right, if indeed either one of them are. Whilst I feel the comic is interesting, but flawed, the movie actually succeeds in introducing moral ambiguity into a Superman story in an effective and provocative manner. The only misstep in the film is at the end. In the film, Superman really does lobotomise Manchester Black, which I felt negated Superman's moral high ground somewhat. What yeah. Stood for. So that that was that kind of left a sour taste in your mouth. In other respects, the film was infinitely superior to the comic. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever get used to Superman calling somebody a wanker, though. Does it? Yeah. I don't think I'm, I really can. The only thing, I think the only reason they got away with that is because 99% of America doesn't know what a wanker is. It's a, yeah. a slang thing that's never really made it over there. So actually, hearing Superman say somebody's a wanker, I was a bit. Yeah, I didn't know how to take that, (laughs) to be honest with you. But I'm telling you, the scene where Superman walks down a terraced road was wonderfully surreal. And I just had this vision of him landing in front of the rover's return (laughs) and talking to Ken Barlow, which would be genius. And you didn't watch the film, did you? Uh, no, I didn't. That's unfortunate, because I really wanted your opinion on the well, film. Well, I'll have to watch it now after that. And just bring it up in another episode. Yeah. I thought... you said it's better than the comic. I thought the film was infinitely better than the comic. Yeah. I thought it... It answered every single criticism I had of the comic... Yeah. They, fo- they solved in the film, with the exception of the ending. Whereas in the ending, he makes it quite clear he's not really lobotomised him in the comic. Yeah. In the film, they make no mention of that. So you're left to believe Superman just lobotomised that guy. <laughs> Which on the one hand you're like, cool. Yeah. On the other hand it just undercuts his point mm. in many ways. Our next comic is a more traditional tale 
A culmination of writer Jeff Loeb and artist Ed McGuinness's run on the strip, actually beginning in Superman 182, featuring Solomon Grundy, born on a Monday, because that's his fun day. His I don't have to run day. He's just another Solomon Grundy. It's just another Solomon Grundy. Who are you? You're not down with the bangles. Um... Part, the secret part one was actually Loeb bringing a number of his long-running plot lines to an end in preparation for his leaving the book. In it, Lois finally hears from Luther regarding the one story she has sworn to spike in exchange for Luther giving up his controlling interest in the Daily Planet. The story, that President Luther was aware of the destruction of Topeka, Kansas in Our Worlds at War, is spiked, but Clark says he never promised to spike the story and turns it into Perry. Luther is less than impressed. Superman 183 has an August 2002 cover date but shipped on June 5th 2002 and as a cover by Ed McGuinness. Clark Kent carries his box of possessions away as Perry stands behind him saying Clark Kent you're fired! It's the kind of cover that only works with a character so thoroughly embedded into pop culture as Superman. Can you imagine anybody not versed in comics curring about a cover that said Alison Blur you're fired! You don't even cur and you know who she is don't you? I think I know who she The Dazzler, dude! Oh, oh right. No, I don't care, <laughs> uh, The Secret Part 2, 30, was written by Jeff Lowe with that by Ed McGuinness and Cam Smith. The next day, the world reacts to the story. Lex, of course, denies all knowledge, and Perry calls Lois and Clark into his office to haul them over the carpet. He claims he knows this was Lois's story, and with President Luther denying everything, they are to find hard evidence of the veracity of the story by tonight, or they're both looking for another job. Clark and Lois discuss the events and both decide they can't tell Perry about Lois's deal and Clark changes to Superman as they wait for Luther to take the bait. At the JLA satellite, 22,300 miles above the Earth, roughly, the Justice League wait for Superman to arrive and they all journey to the White House lawn for noon where Luther awaits having vowed to take a telepathic lie detector test from John Johns, the Martian Manhunter. The Martian Manhunter? The Martian Manhunter. Of course, John Johns can find no evidence that Luther was aware of the destruction of Topeka or anything else the article accused him of. Telepathically, Superman tells John he knows there must be further deception afoot, but in the here and now, John cannot say Luther is lying. John mind links Superman with Luther and whilst they hold a civil conversation in public in the head of the two hurled barbs. Superman tells Luther he knows he's lying, but Luther says the whole point of the secret is once people know it, it's not a secret anymore. Later, Perry calls Clark into his office and tells him that without corroboration, he will have to publish a retraction and apologise to Luther. With the planet's reputation in tatters, Perry has no choice but to fire Clark. Later, Superman meets Perry and Perry smiles. With Luther believing they believe him, Clark's firing was all a ruse to lull Luther into a false sense of security. And now, with Luther thinking he's killed the story, Perry, Superman and Clark can concentrate on bringing him down. Page 1. 30, as Loeb explained in his very first issue as Superman's regular writer, issue 151 in December 1999, was what typesetters used to put at the end of newspaper articles to tell the printer that this was the end. Okay. Didn't know that, did you? Why 30? I don't know. Why not end? Mm, I don't know. Maybe they thought 30 couldn't be mistaken for being another word in the story. And Fair you'd enough. have typesetters actually typing in end and then going, oh, bugger. Yeah. Well, so why not one then? I don't know. Okay, <laughs> Invent it. It's just the way it is, man. Uh, the artwork on the first page and throughout the entire issue is wonderful. 
McGuinness has a really great, colourful, cartoony, clean style, similar to Mike Waringo and Mike Parabek, that really suits superhero comics, but he never skimps on the detail. One of the things I've noticed about comic book art is this kind of cartoony style is actually harder than a lot of hyper-detailed stuff. It takes real talent to make a cartoony style like this so detailed. The first page is large with such detail. I have to confess, I have no idea why there's an alien, i.e. a real-life alf, working at the planet, other than to play with the gag that there's been an alien from Krypton working there for years. Mm. Unless that was a payoff from another issue that I've not read. Maybe. Uh, I don't know. Well, Ed McGuinness art here is quite funny because it's not quite where he will be now where it's still the cartoony style but still really detailed yeah well, what's he doing now is he doing Nova he's doing yes, Nova he with is. Jeff Loeb isn't he once yeah. again yeah. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough um, again page 2 and 3 the devil's in the details there's a Fed Lex box near the dustbin uh, which I thought was quite cool oh because of FedEx FedEx yeah uh, page 5 my problem with this page Perry asks Clark to corroborate his story about Lex that the planet already published. Mm. Now, I get that Perry trusts Clark, and I love that Perry's smart enough to know that this was Lois's story, that for some reason Clark's taken over. But when a story is essentially accusing the president of being an out and out liar, surely Perry would have asked for proof beforehand. Yeah. Would that not have been a smart move? It would have. Of course, it all turns out to be part of his plan. Mm. So that could be why he let the story go. But, but he's risking the Daily Planet's reputation here yeah. to play the long game. Mm. Which I suppose makes sense. The characterisation's good, though. Uh, Perry asking a question of Clark and Lois answering. And Perry calling them on it is wonderful. It seems odd to me that comics get a rap for 2D characters from Alan Moore, of all people. But here, Perry is portrayed as smart and savvy, which I quite liked. Page 7, the suggestive dialogue between Lois and Clark's quite fun here. Mm. Through all this time, Smallville, I get a charge out of watching you change. Me too. I mean the changing part, not the watching. Although, and then she just kisses it, mm. which is quite nice. I, I like the relationship between the two in this. Especially yeah. contrasted to the other one we saw, we recovered. Well, yeah, well, a re- there was an in-story reason yeah, for that. But I loved Superman and Lois being married. Well, yeah, I, I like that because they do seem like a real um, a married couple and not just yeah. two people who this are was married. The, the main difference between this and the Peter Parker marriage, they portrayed Lois and Clark as actually being a married couple. Yeah. They had problems. They had issues. They talked them out, but you still always got that they were there for each other and they loved each other. But they had arguments and, and stuff. I never bought Peter and Mary Jane as being married. Their marriage was too perfect. Yeah. Whereas Lois and Clark, I just bought them being a married couple. And Jeff Loeb especially did an excellent job of nailing Lois's character and the whole marriage. He did a really good job with it and a really good job of selling it. And I thought it was really good. Uh, page 8, Superman, wonderfully depicted by McGuinness, has got the squinty Schuster eyes, but he's far more bulky and muscular as per the current era. The S-Shield is red and black rather than yed- red and yellow in homage to the recent Our Worlds at War. I don't think it looks as cool on this costume as the red and yellow, but that's just an aesthetic thing. I don't know, I quite like it. You like the red and black? Yeah. Okay, fair enough. What would you think about him having black trunks, then? No. Is that not work? I think that's a step too far. Because they're direction. almost black on that panel. They are, but you can still tell that they're red. Mm. But I think having completely black is that one step. Too much. Mm. What do you think about having no trunks? Well, like I said, it's boring with no trunks. <laughs> it does, the, the costume doesn't look right anymore, does it? No. I can understand why they've done it. 
but to get rid of the Joker making jokes about it, probably. Uh, page nine, The Flash wanting to be tied up by Wonder Woman. No, it was Plastic Man. Oh, so it is. Yes, you're absolutely right. My bad. Plastic Man wanting to be tied up by Wonder Woman. So why the Plastic Man was in the JLA is beyond me. Uh, maybe he was just in it at this time, because they do have a revolving membership. Mm. Uh, yeah, Plastic Man wanting to be tied up by Wonder Woman was funny. I quite liked it. I love the uh, body language on page 10. There's this lovely splash page of the JLA landing on the White House lawn. Wonder Woman is elegant and classy. Plastic Man's a goofy beach ball. Superman is grim and determined. But my favourite is the Martian Manhunter. Yeah. Who just seems to glide to the floor. His cape is perfectly cylindrical. Looking essentially like he's just got a huge bell. Yeah. That is enveloping him. Which I thought was lovely. The artwork in this was brilliant, I thought. Page 11. Luther calling John John's out on calling him Mr. Luthor is a reference to not only the recent story where John was working undercover as Lex's security, but also Ned Beatty's Otis character in the first two Superman movies. Page 13, Lex's dialogue about not feeling a tingle like that since he had her is funny. And the art where we see the JLA in silhouette is great, with only the S shield showing, which is a visual I always liked, Mm. which they would do in Superman the Animated Series in the opening credits. Yeah. When it fades out. I always quite like that. And in the... JLA animated series. And in the JLA animated series, yeah. Yeah. In the opening credits. Um, page 14, again, the dialogue in the telepathic exchange between the JLA, where they realise that Luther has conned them, is very effective. I do like that it's Batman, who interestingly isn't at the White House, because I think this is in the urban legend era, uh, who basically said the JLA have been hoodwinked. Well, was it that, or was it because when Morrison started the JLA run, he said that Batman didn't go out on the field? And doesn't go out in the daylight. No. I don't, I, I think, I do, it can maybe both. I'm sure we're into the urban legend era of Batman at this point. Yeah. Because didn't, God, was it Ed, Mc, no, not Ed McGuinness, was it, um, who wrote Captain America? Ed Brubacker. Yeah. Didn't Ed Brubacker write an entire issue of Batman that was urban legend? No. With I Scott don't. McDaniel art. That I thought, I thought it was a really good issue, even though I don't buy into the whole Batman's an Earthen legend thing. Yeah. But it was a good story, a good issue, I liked it. Uh, it's interesting, Lex wants Superman to know he's in love with Lois, but that every other event is missing from his memory. Why would he care that Superman knew that, unless he knew there was a connection between him and Lois? Maybe. Mm, possibly. Because there is that connection between Superman yeah. and Lois and Clark and Lois. Yeah, he's always rescuing Lois Lane. Yeah. Surely somebody somewhere's gone, wait a minute. Yeah, I like the dialogue between um, Superman and Lutharia. Yeah, the dialogue is Mr. President, Superman. My teammate, the Martian. The Martian Manhunter informs me you're telling the truth. But what they're thinking is Luther, hmm? I reign so we can speak privately. Now, now, no need for name-calling alien. If you've got something to say, say it. I know you're lying. And the, I love that in the thoughts, they're making it quite clear that they absolutely despise each other. Yeah. I like the Martian and Alien comment as well. Yeah, with Luther being a bigot. Yeah. Which was, and Superman not taking any of it was quite funny. Uh, Lex really does have the upper hand here, though. Yeah. Oh, and again, this turns out to be they're letting him think that he has the upper hand. Page 17 through 20, Perry firing Clark was actually a great scene. Whilst there is the question of why exactly they're doing this behind closed doors, when the point is they want the world to think Clark is fired, one can argue that there is a subtle little artistic touch that the door behind Clark is slightly ajar. And there's someone listening in. Well, I thought it was Lois. Yeah, yeah. 
I thought it was Lewis that was eavesdropping, but yeah, it doesn't really make that terribly clear. Um, Perry is back to saying Great Caesar's Ghosts after the Great Shades of Elvis, Lois and Clark era. I like um, Perry's crying on that food. Yeah, Perry's upset that he's firing Clark. Yeah. Even though he knows that he's not real. So once again, it makes you question. Yeah, that, it's yeah. a good piece of acting from Perry White. From, you know, a good piece of acting that no one's going to see. Yeah, and that isn't true. Yeah. Uh, page 22 was a really lovely romantic shot of Lois and Clark kissing in front of the moon, which I thought was lovely. Oh, how sweet. But the epilogue actually left me a bit cold. I understand the lulling Lex into a false sense of security. Perry working with Superman. And Clark, though, seems a bit odd, especially not including Lois. Given that I doubt Perry has had a full conversation with Superman himself and Clark, for obvious reasons, it seems to me that this ending would have worked much better narratively if this was just Clark, Lois and Perry meeting up and Superman hadn't been there at all. Because I don't buy for a second that Clark would do this and not tell Lois. Not after the recent storyline where Lois was the parasite and they went through a whole storyline where Clark thinks his marriage is on the rocks due to not communicating. Mm. So therefore, not communicating what he's up to here seems like mischaracterisation to me. Yeah. But that could just be me. I freely admit that. Uh, I thought this was a great issue. I really did. That I picked to give a flavour of what the Superman books were doing in this era. The status quo was quite different for the latter half of the 90s and the early noughties with Superman and Lois married, and it worked much better than it did with Spider-Man. Although the marriage itself was rushed against so the tale that was the now-defunct TV show Lois and Clark could wag the comic book dog, the marriage was handled quite well by Jeff Loeb. I reread a lot of early noughties material for this show, and it really wasn't as bad as I remembered it. I suspect it was railing against the perceived end of my era of Superman, and to be fair, I still think that's valid, as I really do think this is the beginning of the end for the post-crisis Superman. My main issue with the reread, and this may have factored into my memory of this era, is the creative teams are also different, yet initially they tried to carry on with the cross-connected stories of the Carlin era, and I have to say this hurts the stories, especially when read in trade form. Jeff Loeb and Ed McGuinness's stuff is glorious, and a lot of Joe Kelly's stuff is fun, if a little flippant, for Superman. But I really found the Man of Steel title by Mark Schultz and Doug Manke to be quite hard work at the beginning. Loeb and McGuinness would reunite to launch the Superman Batman comics where they would end the Lexus President story arc not a moment too soon as far as I was concerned as that was a story I never really cared for and actually thought was a little boneheaded you can't have Superman be at odds with the President of the USA it's just stupid because it makes Lex the good guy and that's just dumb I don't mind Lex being evil and that only being known to a few but at some point I want Superman to finally nail him and haul him off to jail mm. What did you think of that one? I really like that one, actually. Did you read both of them? No, just... The just issue 183? Yeah. I actually really liked it. It, it, did, it did hit me right in the feels. Did it? Until that ending when I was... Oh, right. It was all a cunning ruse. Because that was quite a disappointing end. Was it? Well, see, it wasn't a disappointing end if you've read more of them, because it, that storyline's been building. Yeah. President Lex. But it did kind of... Took over. Kind of ruined the, the story that... It was the epilogue too. But you've read Superman Batman, so you know how it all turns out. Yeah, but I read Superman Batman as his own entity. I didn't know. Yeah, that was... you didn't know it was carrying on. Which yeah. is Superman Batman's strength then? That yeah. you could read it on its own and it still worked. As long as you know that Lex was president. Yes, as long as you know that, we're laughing. Yeah. Finally tonight, 
perhaps symptomatic of the DC Comics brain trust being unsure of what to do with Superman in the latter half of the decade is evident by the fact that the most critically acclaimed and highly regarded story featuring the Man of Steel in this decade was an out-of-continuity miniseries. Scottish writer Grant Morrison has slowly been working his way up onto the comic book mainstream via off-the-wall vertigo books like Doom Patrol and the Invisibles, but had made no secret of his love of superheroes. After his revamp of Superman in 2000 was vetoed, he made his way over to Marvel, where his controversial take on the X-Men proved incredibly popular. He crossed the street back to DC, where he masterminded a mammoth Batman story arc following the new Everything Counts philosophy, rather than the previously held mantra of everything you know is wrong or just didn't happen. The fact that halfway through his Batman arc, DC rebooted their entire continuity is an irony lost on no one. His main contribution to the Superman legend, other than his handling of the Man of Tomorrow during his acclaimed Justice League run, was a 12-issue series entitled All-Star Superman. The All-Star line was supposed to be DC's answer to Marvel's Ultimate Comics, a self-contained series of books about popular characters that new readers could jump in on that was unfortunately stillborn by Frank Miller's frankly over-the-top All-Star Batman and the non-starter that was Adam Hughes' Wonder Woman. And this Superman run is all that really remains of that concept. Well, isn't Grant Morrison doing All-Star Wonder Woman? Is he? Is that still happening? He's doing something to do with Wonder Woman. And I think he's doing it with Yannick Paquette. But I don't know that it's the All-Star thing, because that was Adam Hughes. Yeah. Whereas Greg Rucker was promised Wonder Woman. And then when they gave it to Grant Morrison, that's why he quit DC Comics. Right. So Grant Morrison must be doing something different with Wonder Woman. Yeah. But we don't know what yet. I reckon it's with Yannick Paquette. This 12-issue series takes ideas Morrison had for the Superman 2000 revamp he had planned with Mark Wade, Tom Payer and Mark Miller, mixes them up with several new concepts and manages to produce a work that both pays all respect to the Silver Age in its tone and imagination, while still bringing modern sensibilities to the material. Whilst telling a complete story over its 12 issues, the individual segments work just as well separately, which is why I feel that the overly reverent animated film version of this series didn't work, as well as other more liberal animations. Adaptations. Whilst I've had my problems with Morrison as a writer in the past, and probably will in the future, All-Star Superman represents for me some of Morrison's best work in that he manages to channel all of his mad ideas into a story that he then manages to make sense of. There are even times where the work borders on staggering beauty. Michael picked this one to cover. All-Star Superman 4 has a July 2006 cover date which was released on May 17th, 2006. The cover, despite featuring the glowing red eyes of Cliché, is actually rather good. The elegant trade dress, designed by Chip Kidd, has the title and creator credit, and Jimmy Olsen, wearing some bizarre Joseph-inspired technical a dream coat, flees as Superman stands behind him, hoisting a car aloft and preparing to hurl it at our intrepid cub reporter. I can't get these crazy future weapons to work, exclaims Jimmy. I'm dead, and so is everyone else. The reason Superman has red eyes is apparently that he's blowing up the ground that Jimmy just ran over. Ignoring the fact there is no way in hell Jimmy can run faster than heat vision, because, you know, you can't run faster than sight, this is a really good evoking the Silver Age style of cover admirably. Cover artist Frank Quitley does an excellent job of drawing Superman on this cover as well, portraying him as much more stocky and compact than overly muscular. I would have a few problems with Quitley's inconsistent work on this series, but when he got it right, as he did here, he did a pretty damn good job. What did you think of the cover, Michael? I liked it, actually. It's one of the, one of the reasons I chose this issue, really. 
Yeah, it's, it's an excellent issue. I mean, yeah. not to give anything away. Yeah. <laughs> you can turn it off now, but lovely listener. It, it does have that golden age silverage feel about it. Yes, it's it's very good. I was very, very impressed with it. The Superman Olsen War was written by Grant Morrison and penciled by Frank Quitley. It was digitally inked and coloured by Jamie Grant, a man I honestly think deserves the lion's share of the credit for this series looking as good as it does. Lucy Lane is at Jimmy's apartment saying that she has been asked to the new Frankenstein and Ice musical by Rock Hansen, and points out that from the newspaper she's reading, Jimmy has been named worst dressed man for the second year running, but Jimmy in blue miniskirt, red bra and removing a blonde wig thinks he looks great. Turns out it was all for a story, and Perry points out that Jimmy's Sunday column is going great guns for the planet. He asks, what next? And Jimmy pitches the idea of Jimmy Olsen's space cadet. The article is based upon the fact that Jimmy has been invited to the Quintum Project on the moon, where Leo Quintum is journeying to the world of the electro-kind, a new life form. Whilst gone, the resources of Project Quintum are at Jimmy's disposal for his next article, I was a project director for a day. Despite not knowing what the acronym PROJECT stands for, Jimmy is given a tour, but quickly gets into trouble when the balcony he stands upon is shattered by overloading equipment and dangling precariously. He hits the signal watch to summon Superman. The Man of Steel dutifully arrives and saves Jimmy, but not the red shirt that caused the accident, and what they discovered, a nugget of purest black. Black kryptonite. At first, Superman feels no ill effects, but slowly he starts becoming arrogant and obnoxious, so Black Kryptonite makes him act like a normal 15-year-old teenage boy. After declaring that no one can stop him doing whatever he feels like, he takes off, and the project directors discuss how they will take down an evil Superman. Jimmy elects to use the Doomsday Serum and turns himself into a Doomsday creature, despite the fact he can only tolerate the serum for 30 seconds before his nervous system collapses. Doomsday manages to take out Superman and Project Quintum reverts Jimmy to normal as Jimmy is thanked by two Broadway producers for saving their lives and he's given two tickets for Frankenstein on ice. Alas, Jimmy can't tell anyone about this story and with Superman back to normal and the Black K locked away, Jimmy uses his authority as project director to write I Love Lucy on the moon. Lucy is duly impressed. (laughs) Page one. The first page is a number of long panels across the page depicting Lucy Lane in Jimmy's apartment. There are numerous nods to the Silver Age on the shelves with pictures of Jimmy as Turtle Boy and numerous artefacts such as Sunboy costume, a magic lamp, a Viking helmet, numerous Superman and Jimmy Olsen action figures and a Rubik's Cube. Yeah. I don't know what a Rubik's Cube's got to do with Silver Age Jimmy Olsen. Yes, maybe that's something to do with it. Jimmy has been named Worst Dressed Man in Metropolis for the second year running. Leo Quintum is the best dressed. Jimmy will later steal one of his coats. Let's be honest, I want one of those coats as well. One of those multicoloured coats that Jimmy nicks. See, Jimmy looks perfectly okay on the front page, even with the bow tie, but the Argyle socks have got to go. (laughs) Argyle socks. Lucy Lane has, in past continuity, been a flight steward, and I can only assume she's still one here, otherwise her criticising Jimmy's dress sense when (laughs) she's wearing a pink Thunderbirds outfit is the height of hypocrisy. Hmm. It's a very futuristic flight stewardess. Yes, it is. Which makes me wonder, is she a flight stewardess? Yeah. It would make sense, because she's got little birds on her Rocket funny little hat. Yes. So, that makes... It makes sense that she's a flight stewardess. Yeah. Or steward, as they're called nowadays. No sexism. No. Not allowed. Uh, of course, the worst dress list all leads to the punchline that Jimmy is in drag. 
On the one hand, this could be another of Morrison's gender-bending gags at the expense of character, such as in Arkham Asylum. But I prefer to give him benefit of the doubt and just say this is a nod to the numerous times in the Silver Age Jimmy either dressed as a girl or became a girl. Most notably in Ms. Jimmy Olsen from Superman's Pal Jimmy Olsen number 44 from April 1960. He was also quite the adept makeup artiste as seen as far back as the cover of Jimmy Olsen 1 from September-October 1954. It's a pretty funny punchline though. It's also a subtle nod to Jimmy's hero worship as he's dressed in yellow, red and blue. Mm. Well you'd be right to give Morrison the benefit of the doubt. Would I? He has said that in his Supergods novel yeah. that there was a lot of criticism about that but he said that Jimmy Olsen's pretty much always been a crossdresser. Only in the in the name of work, <laughs> surely. I mean in the in the next film apparently he's cross gender. No, it's a different character. Apparently so. Uh, page two and three are a double-page spread. Jimmy is more casually attired in pullover and bow tie, but still has some yellow, red and blue going on. Uh, I don't like Quitley's Perry, who he seems to interpret as a porky Winston Churchill, but the shot of the Quinton Project over the bottom of the page is suitably epic, despite it again being Grant's colours that carry it. Mm. It's the same with uh, Metropolis as well. One of the best things about this series was how it looked and was laid out. Like with the like the very white um, pages and the very solid colours and yeah, it, it just even the first panel of Metropolis though looks yeah great. looks pretty damn good. Yeah. My my main problem with Frank Quitley is how can anybody give John Byrne flack for not drawing backgrounds? No backgrounds on page three. Well, that's, well the, there is to an extent, but the colouring's doing all of the work. I but, think we've said this before yeah. when we covered All Star Superman. But it's the thing with, that gives it the feel of futuristic. Oh yeah, I'm not saying that the overall package isn't gorgeous. Yeah. It is. This is an exceptionally well-produced comic book, mm. and it actually feels like a comic book yeah. as well. It doesn't feel like this was written for an overall trade. It's one of the things I will give him full props for. This he managed to produce a 12-issue story where each chapter stood on its own more or less less. until he gets to the end where he does start ramping up a bit Mm. but you could read this in isolation and it works as a standalone comic and the art's really good even though we have some issues with Quitley's it's it's still very Quitley yeah but to me this represents the Pur of them's pinnacle achievement Mm. and they can now go back to doing weird Doom Patrol stuff (laughs) where I don't have to read them because they've done the perfect Superman run the credits are as if this were a movie. I'm going to say this once and move on. Stop treating comics like films. They're unique and should be treated as such. Mm. End of rant. Uh, this irked me, though, especially as Morrison himself has said, cue Scottish accent, comics should definitely be happier and breezier and more confident in their own strengths before Hollywood and the internet turned the business of writing superhero stories into the production of a low budget storyboard or worse into conformist fruitless attempts to impress or entertain a small group of people who appear to hate comics and their creators how can the man who says that approve of the fact that this comic is billed as if it were a film maybe it wasn't him you not reckon? Yeah, it was Didier. Could have been. Uh, possible. Um, Morrison himself believes this to be the best character introduction he's ever written. The Jimmy Olsen introduction on the first three pages of this. Okay. Which is fair enough. Uh, page four. Ah, Leo Quinter. 
Our stereotypical Morrison character for the story. He's smug, super smart, and talks in pretentious pseudo-scientific jargon like the electoral kind of tungsten gas life forms, and some sentences in this greeting may cause instant blindness, Mr. Lister, sir. Uh, I get that this is clever and occasionally funny, but he's done it too much now, so just stop. Page 5 and 6, Jimmy explores Project Quintum and walks past a door labelled Do Not Open Until Doomsday. Mm. Which I thought was really cute. It's quite creepy as well. Yes. Time. Very well coloured, again. Yeah. Lovely colouring on that and page. It's, it's very well handled as well. I mean, Jimmy sees it and then they just move on about it. And then he puts it all together later on. Yeah. yeah it is, it's a very well structured issue. Mm. Fair play, Morrison. I'm going to give you credit for this one. This is a five star book. Um, page seven, Jimmy falls off the balcony while being introduced to the Underverse, panels three and four. There is no way Jimmy could fall like he does in panel three, and then catch the strut as he does in panel four. Because he's uh, falling backwards. So, no, I can see how we can get you think? how he does in the last panel falling backwards. It's how does he hold on to it. Yeah, why is it, does it not bend? Yeah. I was a bit dubious, that. Mm. But all right, well, you know, we can't have Jimmy Olsen fall into the underkind, can we? Well, the underverse... Uh, Sorry, the underverse. W- ...will be revealed to be the home of uh, the Bizarro planet and their way of coming to Earth in later issues. Yeah, when he did his Bizarro story, yeah. which again was, was an entertaining one, wasn't it? Mm. Page eight, the shot in the last panel of a tiny Superman flying towards the moon is gorgeous. Yeah. In its simplicity. Mm. Again, I think the colorist did the majority of the work. Oh, yeah, because it would be very, very simple if it was just the quickly. I would natural. love to see an essential version of this, or an absolute. What are they called? Showcase. Yeah. I want to see a black and white version of this to see how little Quitly actually did. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to be proven wrong mm. that Quitly did a, a shed load of detail in his artwork, but I don't think that he did. He's capable of it, but I, I do. He not didn't do it in this it. book. Yeah. Uh, page 9, the rescue scene again looks gorgeous. Again, the colouring. I don't like Quitley's l- short cape. You still not? No, I'm still not down with that. Okay. Bugs me a bit. Uh, Black Kryptonite originally appeared in the animated series and the television series Smallville. First appeared in the comics in Supergirl issue 2 from 2005, where it split Supergirl into two, and an issue of Superman Batman, where it was said to rob Superman of his sanity. It works here rather like the green K of the movie Superman 3, although it seems to make him a bit more destructive and arrogant than apathetic. Page 11, the scene where Superman turns evil is really, really good. Slowly... His speech panels change, and the word balloon starts white with black text, and then becomes grey, dark grey, darker grey, and then black with white text, which is really effective, and probably wouldn't work in black and white. Mm. It has to be said. They reverse the effect on the following page, as Superman tries to fight the effect, but as the black K takes hold, he then starts talking like Bizarro. Yeah. So does that make sense? Because the black kryptonite came through from the world yeah. where the Bizarro so planet So it has from. that payoff where yeah. he goes to the Bizarro world. But so in and of itself, this issue works alone. But as the entire whole, it's even better. Do you know, I'm finding myself being complimentary to Grant Morrison in this issue. Yeah. It's paining me. I do like how the table also slowly cracks the more... The more he, he grips yeah. hold of it. Also on this page we're on right here. Page 11. Uh, is it? Is it page 12? We're on page 12 now. Could be page 12, yeah. That top panel, panel 2, Yeah, that's a very burn expression. Yes. Oh, yes, it is, actually. Yeah, but that's a very burn face. I like the last panel as well, where Jimmy jumps over. Jumps out of the way of the heat vision. Yeah. Again, you can't move faster than sight. 
I can't look over there and somebody gets out of my way before I see them. Yeah. But it's, it is an excellent panel. I do like Jimmy jumping up for for, uh, for dear life. I really like that on page 15 where Superman wipes out Project's defences in one panel. It seems like this that really demonstrate how powerful Superman is and how easy it would be for him to take over the world if he wanted to. I, I like the last panel where it's just one cutaway panel but that on its own shows the fight that's gone what, on. How quickly can show um, movement, really? Mm. Yeah, it, it was it's exceptionally well done, exceptionally economical mm. in this era of right for the trade and decompression that Morrison pulls all that off in one page. Yeah. So, again, it's physically hurting me, but fair play to <laughs> uh, Page 16, Superman destroys the Daily Planet globe. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, page 17 through 21 is actually a really, really good fight scene, albeit pretty brief. Jimmy becomes Doomsday, which is a visual quickly pulls off quite well, and pounds on Superman over two or three pages. I didn't quite get how Doomsday was able to weaken Superman so efficiently, unless the red beam from his eyes is red sun radiation, which, as we all know, would weaken him. And that would make sense. I was also quite impressed by how, how all of Jimmy's clothes fell off after the transformation, with wisps of smoke spurring us a look at little Jimmy. But the signal watch stretches to fit his wrist. Yeah. Which I thought was a really nice touch. It was established earlier on when Evil Superman tries to cut Jimmy's hand off at the wrist that the watch was indestructible. And there's a lovely touch at the end when the Broadway producers think that Superman and Jimmy save them from the doomsday monster meaning Superman's off the hook for all the property damage and he tells Jimmy Olsen to keep it quiet he's off the hook for all of this yeah. which I thought was quite clever because mm. many many times I think we've brought up in the past couple of shows there's only how many times Red K would affect Superman and he trashes Metropolis yeah. before people would stop trusting him and start going down the whole he's a danger path yeah. but here Everyone thinks that Superman has defeated the Doomsday Monster. But then, on the other hand, the the two guys who give him the tickets have stood right there watching Jimmy transform back into Jimmy. Maybe they just have one of those mental block things where they, we didn't see that. Yeah, we didn't see it. Here's two tickets for Frankenstein <laughs> and Ice. Move along. Uh, page twenty-two. I quite liked Jimmy writing "I Love Lucy" on the moon, which is not without precedent. As uh, is a nice subtle meta nod. Superman wrote on the moon when he thought he was dying in the last days of Superman from Superman 156 in October 1962. And I Love Lucy was, of course, a famous 50s sitcom starring Lucille Ball that featured a guest appearance from George Reeves as Superman. Unusually for Frank Quitley, I actually find his Lucy Lane quite attractive. Okay. I normally don't like his women at all. Yeah. But uh, Lucy's quite, um, quite come hither. In that last panel, especially as she said, come here, Jimmy. Woo, Jimmy's in for some fun tonight. <laughs> uh, I thought this was excellent. Excellent issue from what is, with a few exceptions, a damn good series. Morrison manages to introduce all these wacky hijinks and offbeat concepts, but in this instance, never forgets to tell a coherent story. Being only one issue, it moves along at a brisk pace, but still manages to contribute to the greater whole, with Superman worrying about dying, which plays into the whole 12-issue arc. Quitley's art is fine in the sense that I accept his style at this point, but I honestly feel the colorist and inker Jamie Grant deserves a lot more credit for this book looking as good as it does. It's that Rur series, 
in that the creative team are firing on all cylinders and the final product may even be equal to the hype. As I said before, the Grant Morrison series that even people that don't like Grant Morrison can like. Yep. What did you think of that one? Or do I not even need to ask when it's a Grant Morrison no, comic? but there, there is an issue I think is a much better issue than that. Which one? Issue 10. Why did we not do that one then? Because... Um, once again, it's another told-in-one story, which is the day in the life of Superman is him doing all these super feats and saving lives, and it ends with Superman creating a pocket universe, right. which will be revealed to be our own, in which we create Superman, leaving the full circle of the death of, and then the recreation. Right. But I chose this one because it was just an action issue. And a damn good one. Yeah. An excellent, an excellent one. No, it was a good choice. I'm just wondering why, if you prefer issue 10. Why have you never asked for the absolute version of that? Um... Because we already have it, so I've been concentrating on absolutes without a worth again and again, but I, I do think that would be next. Alright, fair enough. Okay. Um, there was a couple of good ads in this issue, unlike the previous issues we covered, which didn't really have some good adverts this, this time. Mm. Tomb Raider. Legend. There's a picture of Dan DiDio in the DC Nation page. Next to some, uh, Next justice, to pencils. some justice pencils. By, is that Alex Ross or Dougie Breathwaite? Doug Breathwaite. Uh, Ethan Van Skeever's taking over Superman Batman. Uh, Kurt Busiek and Carlos Pacheco are taking over Superman. Grant Morrison and Andy Kubert are taking over Batman. Mm-hmm. All excellent one-page adverts. Dark Victory got a series of action figures, which I would have liked, except I really don't like the Batman one. Yeah. I like all the others. Mm. I can't stand the Batman one. I really think it looks a bit lame. Infinite Crisis gets action figures. None of them look particularly good to me. Mm. But that could just be me. And is that it, France? Oh, Detective Comics has Paul Dini and J.H. Williams III taking over, which was a very good run. Oh, J.H. Williams did it. Yeah, for, for a short time, Paul Dini's Batman run was uh, very good, and then he left, ah. unfortunately. Uh, sources this week. The complete payer Wade Miller Morrison pitch can be read at site.google.com slash site slash deep space transmission slash resources slash superman hyphen 2000 hyphen proposal Mike's amazing world of DC comics is still a wonderful source of information and is at www.dcinsexes.com there was an excellent interview with Grant Morrison even though I'm not particularly a devotee uh, all about all-star superman which was fascinating fascinating look into how the man constructs his stories which was on www.newsarama.com slash comics slash 110803-grant-superman-10.html That was pretty much it for resources this week. All Superman vs. The Elite is available on DVD unless you live in the UK. Thanks, Warners! Once again, they don't want our money. They don't want my money. Next time! Happy birthday, Superman! concludes yeah the end oh how sad is that it's very sad it's very very sad with a look at the second team up between Superman and the amazing Spider-Man from 1981 it's a date what are we doing after this no idea we're not got a clue yet have we no. <laughs> this has been very time consuming ladies ladies and gentlemen if we have any ladies that listen we may have to have a break and do audio commentaries for a bit yeah no we'll, we won't do that I don't think. Okay, well, uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you very much for joining us. Bye-bye. Goodbye.
Kids Comics is that the devil will make work for idle hands to do production. And all opinions expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew, and you probably shouldn't take them too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are for illustrative and review purposes only, and no infringement is intended. Andrew and Michael make no money from the production of this show, which is a source of much consternation. New episodes drop every Thursday over at twotruefreaks.libson.com which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. Old episodes of the show are also archived on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed at twotruefreaks.lipson.com. If you wish to communicate with Michael or Andrew or any of the things they've discussed about on the show, you can email them at heykidscomics, all one word, at virginmedia.com. If you wish to view the covers of the comics we've talked about this week, we have a website www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com If you are so inclined but don't actually want to drop us an email but just wish to ask us a quick question or say hi, you can Facebook friend us. We're using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name and Comics as the surname. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. However, it would become apparent that scrolling down really does screw up your ability to read properly. Do you ever keep these? No, I always edit these out. You really should.